the court. La cour. Good morning. Please be seated. In the cases of His Majesty the King against Christopher James Cruck, and between His Majesty the King versus Edwin Tsang, for the appellant, His Majesty the King, Suzanne Elliott, Christy Lusk, Lauren Chu, via Zoom, and Sarah Clive. For the respondent, Christopher James Cruck, Brent R. Anderson, Christopher Johnson, KC. For the respondent, Edwin Tsang, Richard S. Fowler, KC, and Eric Persky. For the intervener, Independent Criminal Defense Advocacy Society, Gregory P. Delbigio, KC, Danielle J. Son, KC, for the Intervenor, Criminal Lawyers Association, Ontario, Brenna Van de Brieck. For the Intervenor, Trial Lawyers Association of British Columbia, Mark Iron-Gar and Benjamin Redek. For the Intervenant, Association Québécoise des Avocats et Avocats de la Défense, Hugo Casey and Miralie Roussin. For the interveners, West Coast Legal Education and Action Fund Association and Women's Legal Action Fund, Megan Stevens and Umira Jabir and Roxana Parsa. Please note that uh, there is a publication ban in these matters pursuant to Section 486.4 of the Criminal Code. Ms. Elliott. Thank you, Chief Justice, Justices. These appeals raise a broad common issue about when a judge is prohibited from using common sense to determine if what a witness says happened actually did happen. That is the credibility and reliability of direct evidence. We say the BC Court of Appeal erred in applying what has become known as the rule against ungrounded common sense assumptions to intervene. These cases also illustrate how application of the rule invites appellate courts to parse reasons. In this way, we say the BC Court of Appeal also erred by failing to read the reasons as a whole in the context of a record. I will be speaking to these issues in this order. My colleague will be speaking to the framework to be applied once an error is identified in the event we are wrong about these first two points. At this point, I'm going to start with the broader issue, why we say the rule against ungrounded common sense assumptions should not be adopted by this court. Before going there, I want to explain what I say the rule against ungrounded common sense assumptions is. I'm using the formulation from the Ontario Court of Appeals decision in JC, 
But the same error has been described in other ways. Ungrounded generalizations, unsupported inferences, speculative reasoning. It is usually triggered when the judge uses generic phrasing or language like, it is unbelievable, unlikely, implausible, or conversely, it makes sense, has an air of reality, rings true. Its application places limits on a trial judge's use of common sense to assess the believability of what yes, a witness... But, I mean, let's, let's, let me give you a simple example. If a, if a trial judge says, in assessing the evidence, ordinarily, a mother will very diligently protect their children. And, and it is out of character for mothers to be neglectful or harmful toward their children. But now I must weigh this against the evidence. Is, is it not a sort of a well-grounded assumption that it, it, when you go through life, that most mothers are actually very caring towards their children? And would it be very odd if you said, There's, I have no view of that. I'm completely neutral as to that. that there's, there's no experience of life that assists me in evaluating that. There are some things which are well-founded and some things which are not. And, 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 and isn't it, whether you say there's a rule, I'm not sure calling it a rule makes any difference. Is, is it a well-founded basis upon which to view the evidence or is it an ill-founded basis? And sometimes people who are in, in, uh, judges say some very odd things. And, and are we simply to say, well, that's fine, because they're a judge, they can have the oddest views in the world, and it's just hunky-dory because we defer to things that are speculative or even absurd. My answer to that question is um, essentially that my position is not that appellate courts cannot intervene to correct reasoning that is, as you said, Justice Rowe, absurd. My position is that the current framework for appellate review is sufficient to permit appellate courts to intervene when the reasoning rises to the level of palpable and overriding error. However, the rule is, is a rule that's been accepted by appellate courts across the country, and it's one that turns uh, questionable judicial reasoning into an error of law. And in my submission, it should not be adopted because it has certain frailties that I can turn to now. Yeah, but before you go on, you've said to us that uh, palpable and overriding error is what should apply. But uh, palpable and overriding error relates to whether there is evidence which is sort of clear on its face, pretty much, that's the palpable part, and overriding is something which could have, have an effect on the outcome. This isn't in, in terms of uh, a finding of fact, this is a portion of the methodology by which uh, inferences are drawn. And if you have a, a, a flawed, a fundamentally flawed methodology, why should any deference be shown to that? To 
Two uh, points in response. My, my understanding from this uh, court's jurisprudence is that when we're talking about palpable error, it's discussed in terms of clearly, plainly, blatantly, palpably wrong. And in my submission, the concept is sufficient to incorporate findings of fact that the judge, uh, that the Court of Appeal uh, says were plainly wrong based on uh, the judge's assessment of credibility. But further, this court has been clear that assessing credibility is not an easy task. And applications of common sense to assess believability may be commingled with impressions of how the witness testified and their overall sense, the judge's overall sense of the evidence. And in HL, I won't take the court there, but uh, this court talks about a series of cerebral operations that can be simultaneous and complex. So again, I, my submission is it's not that simple to, exer to excise the judge's reasoning from the overall credibility task with the trier of fact, and we know it's also difficult to articulate with precision. And this is a reason why I say deference should apply. But is it, is it difficult to, to ascertain the judge's reasoning if the judge writes it out in plain anglais ou français, right? And says, here is the basis. That's not difficult. It's, 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 it's staring you in the face. If it's, if it's somehow implicit, it may be difficult. But what we're talking about here is, the, is trial judges laying the cards on the table and whether it's a sound basis for, for the evaluation of the evidence, for the assessment of credibility or the drawing of inferences. It, and so it isn't a situation, oftentimes, of a motif cachet. This isn't something that's hidden behind a curtain. It's, it's presented in the reasons for decision as the basis for making findings. In my submission, these cases, and in particular the case of Sang, demonstrates that that's not how the rule is being applied. It is very much inviting appellate courts to engage in a very different process from the ordinary process of, of a deferential stance towards a judge's credibility findings. Is there a narrower basis, I wonder, to deal with this issue, and that is to say, uh, really, the cases are about inductive reasoning, permissible and impermissible inductive reasoning. And the framing by Justice Pachoco in JC about of the rule against uh, ungrounded common sense assumptions is pretty innocuous in paragraph 58 of his reasons. Judges must avoid speculative reasoning that invokes common sense assumptions that are not grounded in the evidence or appropriately supported by judicial notice. Really where, and that's, that's pretty unobjectionable, I wonder what, where, where it may become an issue of debate is whether that is really just a species of evidentiary factual uh, error or review or whether that qualifies as an error of law. And because that seems to be the concern that there's going to be uh, excessive uh, appellate intervention in file, trial findings on credibility. So I wonder if one can accept as Professor Dufresnoy does, as you've uh, is in, reflected in the materials, that this is a useful way of con conceptualizing permissible and impermissible inductive reasoning, but it really is a species of evidentiary error, not legal error. Yes, our position is that it is a species of 
evidentiary error, not legal error. But just to go back to the, the framework set out in, in JC, we do have concerns with how it's articulated. And Professor Dufresne-Mont uh, actually identifies that point as well, which is, well, everyone accepts that common sense, logic, and human experience are important to make credibility findings. The articulation in JC uh, raises the question whether common sense reasoning can survive um, unless it's grounded in judicial notice. And our submission is that judicial notice is not a helpful context in this, in this uh, a helpful, helpful concept in this context. Um, the reason why I say that is that in my submission, a judge is not generally taking judicial notice by assessing the believability of evidence. The judge is not finding facts or filling a gap in the evidence. The evidence grounding the fact is the witness's direct testimony about what happened. And we know from the case law that a judge is afforded generous ambit within which to assess evidence. Reasonable minds can disagree, but it doesn't make the judge wrong. Can I just stop you and go back leading up to your right on what Justice uh, Jamal just talked about? And I'm just wondering, um, just a second, I'm looking at my notes here. Uh, do you see, foresee any danger of setting this as an error in law when we all already have the pre-existing stereotypical and myth-based re uh, reasoning as an error in law? So how do you see that? If I, I'm just going to finish one more point and then I would love to move on to that question. As I, as I said, um, in my submission, the notion of judicial notice is incompatible because there, in judicial notice, the fact must be so notorious that reasonable people cannot disagree. And the final point is judicial notice incorporates a requirement for the judge to give notice to the parties and seek submissions. And that's impractical and unwieldy when we're dealing with the type of common sense logic and, and judicial experience that judges use to decide to whether, whether to accept or reject evidence in criminal trials. And both sides of the aisle are routinely, every day across the country, asking judges to rely on their common sense to challenge the credibility and reliability of witnesses. And thank you, I'll move now to the, the issue or the question raised about stereotypical reasoning. And in our submission, stereotypical reasoning and common sense assumptions are not the same thing. They are different concepts and they should be kept separate and distinct. And the reason why we say this is stereotypical reasoning as, it's, as it is an error of law, as recognized in the case law, is rooted in biases. For example, sexual assault claimants or complainants are inherently untrustworthy. A significant component of stereotypical reasoning is that the assumption or generalization is wrong. It's been established to be inaccurate and discriminatory. Stereotypical reasoning is therefore a form of generalization, but it does not extend to all generalizations. It's also limited. And we know, uh, we know what stereotypical reasoning is from the case law. We have, uh, starting with C. Boyer, 
many examples of it. What about stereotypical reasoning that relates to a group? For myself, I tend to use the term myths with respect to human sexual behavior and stereotypes about a view as a group. Now, the nomenclature shifts a bit. Sometimes stereotypes are used in the context of human sexual behavior. But if, if someone said the Irish are lazy and inclined to drink and the English are cold and emotionless, um, and I'm English by uh, uh, ancestry, but um, the, is that not a stereotype? And it has nothing to do with sexual behavior. Yes, so, and I, I believe my, uh, my friend from the uh, Attorney General of Alberta addresses this point. It is important to keep the language and the context defined. So I agree that in the English language, what you've described is a stereotype. But my submission, whatever you want to call it, a myth or a stereotype, is that the specific interests at play in sexual assault cases that have historically plagued our criminal justice system should be kept uh, separate and distinct. And in terms of other erroneous reasoning from generalizations, we also see in the case law there are other concepts such as in the this court's decision in RDS about bias and impartiality. Um, obviously, a judge needs to assess the evidence before them. Nobody's, uh, nobody's challenging that. We're not here to challenge it and, and do a context-specific assessment. Uh, but the question raised by these appeals, in part, is when the judge doesn't do that, what's the appropriate mechanism? And in our submission, the appropriate mechanism is not to extend stereotypical reasoning into all reasoning through the creation of the common sense assumption rule. And the reason why we say that um, is in part, there are kind of three reasons we've identified, but the rule erodes the deferential standard of review because it invites appellate courts to parse language, which is what we say happened in, in both of the cases before the court. This court has established in an unbroken line of cases that deference applies to a judge's credibility findings. And as I already indicated, the deferential standard acknowledges that there is a range of findings that a reasonable court could make. That's why, according to the deferential standard, the error must be clear, plain, blatant, palpable, and the reasons must be read as a whole. And as I indicated, and when I get into Kruk and saying, I believe it will illustrate this point, the rule against ungrounded common sense assumptions invites a very different process. The court tends to look at a sentence or words within a sentence decide whether it's tied to generalizations at all, as opposed to, for example, and we'll see this in both cases, is it just acceptance of the complainant's contradictory account? And if the court decides it's a generalization, then they look to see whether it's grounded in the evidence, and that's a concept that I say has, has posed challenges in its application or appropriately supported by judicial notice. This rule, in, in the, to the extent that it uh, 
cuts into the deferential standard of review is also a problem because it impedes a judge's ability, a trial judge's ability to know what they can do and what, what, how they can use common sense. This court has said credibility is a matter that must be left to the common sense of the trier of fact. It's used to understand and interpret witness evidence, including the, including the plausibility of evidence. And in fact, it's so critical to the exercise. If common sense reasoning cannot survive the rule against ungrounded common sense assumptions, and that is the point that Professor Dufresne made in her article uh, when considering the framework as articulated in JC, that there was an outstanding question about whether it could survive ungrounded common sense assumptions. Trial judges will be challenged to reason their way to a conviction in cases where credibility is determinative. And we know that in sexual assault cases, credibility is often determinative. Ms. Elliott, I wonder if I could ask, in addition to, I, you, so if you identify a common, a common core of not grounded on the evidence and then the myth and stereotypical category characterized by some form of bias or discrimination and affront to dignity or equality, a gender-based dimension that would be absent otherwise. I'm wondering if you, what you would, whether you would comment on the consequence of the Court of Appeal conflating the two, whether, and I'm thinking of uh, a point made in the leaf factum that you, you no doubt have read that that in so doing, the analysis became decontextualized and thus diminished the, the work that's been done since Seaboyer on identifying this, and in fact fell prey to its own stereotypical assumptions. I wonder you know, if you see what, what I mean by the, the, the consequences beyond intrusive appellate review, lack of deference, it also conjures up a, a different problem according to this view. What, what are your thoughts there? I, I agree um, with the submissions of LEAF and in my submission as well, it is troubling how the rule is being applied in sexual assault cases. What we see, and when I come to the specifics of uh, Kruk and Sang shortly, I can point out specific examples, but the rule is risking reintroducing the special baseline standard uh, for credibility assessments in sexual assault cases. So for example, in, in Croc, there's a, there's a statement by the Court of Appeal that the complainant should have been asked to explain why she was so certain that the sexual assault happened at all. And in saying there is, uh, in reviewing the cases, the Court of Appeal notes that in terms of what's acceptable common sense and what's not often hinges on evidence about the complainant's predilections. That's the word that the court uses. And in my submission, these are very uh, problematic um, concepts stemming from application of the rule against ungrounded common sense assumptions that does risk um, reverting back to a time um, when sexual assault complainants were treated very differently. And as another example would be 
um, by limiting a trial judge's ability to reason their way to credibility determinations. Um, it's problematic in sexual assault cases because essentially the view now is anything is possible. Anything is possible unless the judge is able to point to evidence in the record, which tends to be confirmatory evidence for the reason why he or she accepted aversion. And these, can I these, just... these two cases are about sexual assault, but it seems to me that the propositions of law that you are putting to this court, and maybe I'm mistaken, are intended to be rules of general application in terms of all criminal matters, armed robbery, uh, murder, shoplifting. And, and are you saying that there's a special set of rules for sexual assault cases? I'm not taking issue with it, I'm just trying to understand your position. Or are you saying that these are general rules for all offenses? Because every single time you've spoken to the evidentiary rule, you have put it in the context of the sexual assault. So which is it, specific to sexual assaults or general rules for all criminal matters. It's framed as, in a way that it should be, I would think, a general rule. However, the rule is being invoked almost exclusively in sexual assault cases and almost exclusively by those convicted of sexual assault. And I say my position is the law should be the same across offenses. But, for example, if we're talking about um, a robbery charge, as you raised, Justice Rowe, in a robbery charge, if a trial judge considered that it's unlikely for the complainant to have freely consented to accompanying a stranger to an ATM, withdraw $500, and just gift it to the accused, nobody would be having any discussion about it. Everyone would. I would think the courts would accept that's an application of common sense to the facts. The problem is sexual assault cases are being treated differently. And this rule has been developed and devised in the context of sexual assault cases almost exclusively. But you're, you seem to be saying, and I'm, I'm trying to unpack the logic here, because I find the logic obscure. Perhaps everyone else is clear on this except me, but anyway. Um, if you're saying that the, uh, what might be called myths or stereotypes, I, as I said, I prefer the word myths, that relate to human sexual behavior are a special instance where rules are, need to be directed towards those circumstances because there's something uh, particular about those circumstances, understanding of human sexual behavior, then why should that proposition drive the whole rules, the, the whole framework for evidence for all criminal matters. I mean, it, this is the part I'm not getting. My position is that stereotypical reasoning is not just about human sexual behavior. It's about established myths that have plagued the criminal justice system um, by producing unfair trials and unfair results. What do you see as the dis difference between common sense and circumstances where judicial notice uh, can be applied? What is the, what is the difference? 
I, I do appreciate that in some of the authorities or, or case law, they talk about a spectrum of judicial notice. I don't find that helpful. In my submission, judicial notice has been clearly defined by this court. It had, requires that the fact be so notorious that real, reasonable minds can differ. It's a very stringent standard. It requires notice to the parties and, and taking submissions. In my submission, the application of common sense is bound up in the trial judge's assessment, looking at direct evidence, what can I believe and what can I not believe? And it is short or lesser than the, the um, requirements of, of judicial notice. So let me give you an example, because I want to understand whether this is judicial notice or this is common sense. And let's go outside the sexual assault context to see, uh, to, in light of the point that Justice Rowe has raised, um, let's say we're dealing with an ordinary physical assault and it's somebody who's intoxicated and they're punched in the face. And then as part of the reasoning process, the trial judge says, well, you know, the, the uh, complainant says they were punched in the face. And anybody who's been punched in the face knows that they've been punched in the face. Is that common sense or is that judicial notice? Because it seems to me it's the same sexual assault, physical assault. Uh, isn't it the same thing that we're dealing with here? A woman knows if she's been uh, physically violated, she's been punched in the face or uh, penetrated. Is it, is it judicial notice or is it common sense? In, in my submission, that, that would be an application of common sense to the facts of the case. And it would be bound up as well with the trial judge's assessment of this complainant, that, that complainant's evidence. Um, so if part of the assessment would be, do I find this complainant trustworthy? How the claim, complainant or relates the evidence? And then the application of how likely is it for someone to mistake a punch in the face is appropriate consideration to go into, into the equation. But in my submission, that's not finding a fact in the sense of judicial notice. But doesn't it rely on a generalization of what people feel? And somebody who's been punched in the face knows, it's not just on the evidence, it's somebody who's been punched in the face knows they've been punched in the face. That's a generalization about sensation, neurology, uh, isn't it, as well? I agree it's a generalization, yes. Um, but in my submission, generalizations are inherent in the application of common sense. When a, when a judge is looking at the plausibility, the believability of what the witness says happened and any challenge to their credibility and reliability. So for example, and to go to take the, your example, but it's also quite similar to the Croc example, you also have to look at what's happening in the trial. Like I, I would assume in your example, the defense has raised a challenge to the reliability of the witness's evidence and said, judge, and they're saying, as a matter of common sense, you should have a concern about this, the reliability of this witness's evidence because he was so intoxicated. And the judge says, applying the same common sense that the defense is asking him to apply to reject the evidence, says, mm, I hear what you're saying, but I don't agree. But he said the judge said that the, the complainant was obviously unreliable in Croc. He said that at paragraph 48. 
Yes, and in, in my submission in, in CROC, and um, I'm just going to... I don't want to <laughs> see, force you I, to jump to another part, but... Uh, it it's probably is a good time uh, to, move to, to move to specific examples. So I will move to CROC, and I will generally be following my outline at tab two of my condensed book. Uh, but yes, the judge did, in the introduction of his overview, remark on the fact that the complainant uh, was obviously unreliable, and I say with reference to the gaps in her memory. Um, and uh, that, that was a fact. She had complete blackouts. But in my submission, that doesn't end the inquiry. The judge is making a general observation, but what matters, what mattered in this case, was her ability to perceive, recall, and re recollect the, the core event, which is when she woke up with the penis in, in her vagina. And so in my submission, the intoxicated, while intoxicated, the complainant was not inherently unreliable about everything. And the BC Court of Appeal, by focusing in on the initial statement, reads into the trial judge's reasons, I say erroneously, that he had a doubt about this complainant's reliability and that he had to overcome this doubt. And in my submission on a fair reading of the reasons, the judge did not have a doubt about the complainant's reliability about this core issue. He accepted her evidence about what she did feel and rejected the defense theory that he should find her testimony that she felt and did not assume uh, a penis was in her vagina unreliable because she was drunk. Well, in fact, doesn't the Court of Appeal says, say that there's a body of evidence on which the judge could convict? So, uh, in paragraph 61, so once we get into the specifics, the general blackout and the general unreliability of her memory of the evening, once we get into the you know, the detail of what happened at that particular time. In fact, there's a finding that there was a body or an acceptance that there was a body of evidence on which the judge could convict. And the specific uh, uh, accurate memories uh, in, uh, summarized at paragraph 60. So even on the Court of Appeals reasonings, it seems um, you can't say that there's a, no reliability of anything she said and then say there's a body of evidence on which you can convict. Yes, and the issue we take in, in, with the Court of Appeals reasoning is that they didn't read the reasons functionally and contextually. And the reasons are brief, I accept that, um, but in my submission, when the judge actually went from the general to the specific, looking specifically at the observation that the complainant, or what the complainant felt when she woke up, uh, the judge accepted her evidence. He describes it, and when the judge says, in short, her tactile senses were engaged, he is accepting that the complainant felt a penis in her vagina. And once having accepted that, that answers the defense theory that she assumed it, because he accepts she felt it. And the next sentence was answering the defense theory, well, maybe she was mistaken. And the judge is essentially saying, if she didn't feel vaginal penetration, if she was mistaken, what else could it be? And in my set submission, that is a common sense uh, assessment, and the judge was entitled uh, to 
rely on common sense to reject the defense theory as objectively implausible. So when the judge said it is extremely unlikely that a woman would be mistaken about that feeling, uh, you say that uh, it is based on common sense, but there is a basis into the evidence about such a statement? I say at that point in time, he's accepted her evidence that she felt vaginal penetration. And he's considering the defense, what the defense said, find her mistaken. And he's saying, I find it, ex I, I'm rejecting the defense theory that she's mistaken. I've accepted that she knew what she felt and she felt it. And in my submission, that was sufficient. That was all the judge needed to do. The complainant was the best and only witness who could speak to what she felt in her vagina when she woke up. And the judge accepted it. That was a credibility finding, reliability finding, that she was a reliable historian of what she felt when she woke up. And that's the end of the matter in my submission. Deference was owed to that factual finding. And just a couple other points about it. Of course, the judge also relied on confirmatory evidence. And I say it wasn't insignificant evidence that uh, the accused had undressed himself, was naked and put on uh, shorts, that the accused or the respondent had taken off the complainant's pants and that the respondent had deliberately, intentionally not contact the complainant's parents to take advantage of a vulnerable, an intoxicated woman in a vulnerable state. And if the Court of Appeal had read the reasons functionally and contextually as well, in my submission, the Court of Appeal could and should have considered the fact that when the complainant woke up with sensing the penis in her vagina, her state of intoxication, at least in terms of her state of ability to perceive what was happening, recall and recount, was much different than earlier in the evening when she had blackouts. In fact, she was clear about what she couldn't remember, what she was uncertain about and what she did remember. And in terms of what she did remember when she woke up, it was vastly confirmed by the respondent himself and also by uh, her relatives who attended the house to pick her up. So there was actually nothing in the record in my submission to cast doubt on the reliability of this one observation, this one observation that was critical when all of the other things that she testified to at that event, and I'm not talking about the electricity not working, but it was agreed she was trying to work the lights. It was agreed she woke up with him on top of her. She pushed, he pushed him off. She wasn't wearing pants. She ran around looking for a charger. She couldn't work the light switches. Her dad arrived, she heard his voice, and she fled out the door. All of these factors uh, were established to be reliable. So there was no reason in my submission to cast doubt or be particularly concerned about an observation that in my submission uh, was within, she was the best and only witness to testify about it. He found her reliable and credible and as I said. I'm not sure I got your answer to Justice Cote's question. When the trial judge says it's extreme, I know you say uh, he's already made a finding at that point uh, about uh, she felt uh, the penis inside, but when it says it's passed more broadly. It's extremely unlikely that a woman would be mistaken about that feeling. Is that a statement of common sense? Or is that uh, a statement of which uh, judicial notice can take, be taken in the same way that you can take judicial notice that somebody 
who's punched in the face would feel the punch in the face. Is it which category of, is it common sense or is it judicial notice? In, well, in my submission, it's a matter of common sense. Um, and the, the judge could have framed it any other way. He used generic language, which always attracts the, the scrutiny um, or is one of the means in which appellate courts identify issues. But in my submission, it's a, it's a matter of common sense. But the two aren't necessarily exclusive. A, a matter of common sense could also be judicial notice. But in terms of this uh, particular statement, does it matter if the judge says uh, this woman or, or the woman or a woman? You know what I mean? Like there, there's just, there's a statement there. And are we really going to have everything turn on whether it's a particular um, uh, pronoun? I believe this woman knew what was happening versus I believe a woman would know what was happening. I, I agree, and that is one of the concerns that I identified at the beginning in terms of the application of this rule inviting parsing of language. It really would be, in my submission, parsing language, but I believe under the case law, had the judge said this woman, we probably wouldn't be here. I mean, isn't there a, isn't there a difference in kind between a judge saying any person in these circumstances would be expected to behave in the following manner. Now we can have evidence to contradict that, to indicate they've, they've behaved in another manner. Versus, so that's sort of one type. Any person in this situation could be expected to behave in a certain manner. Versus, given the factual findings I have made about this particular witness, I would then expect that person to behave in a certain manner. Are those not two you know, statements of a different nature that need to be treated differently? I agree they're, they're statements of a different nature. They reflect this court's jurisprudence, which is in my submission clear, that trial judges should conduct a context-specific review of credibility assessments. However, having said that, I submit that the functional and contextual approach still requires the appellate court to look at the reasons as a whole. Because, and I, if I understood correctly Justice Martin's point, there are times when the judge's manner of expression may not be perfect, but the concept that they're communicating when you look at the reasons as a whole um, is permissible. So I guess my answer, Justice Rowe, is that I agree they're different concepts, but I submit that there's a danger in um, creating too black and white a distinction in terms of how the judge expressed themselves versus a functional and contextual review, what was the judge actually doing? You, you have misunderstood me completely in my line of question. If you think I'm indicating there should be bright lines here, my inclination is quite the opposite. My only point, and I'll make it again and I'll leave it alone, is that inferences that are drawn with respect to 
the conduct of a witness based on factual findings relating to that witness seems to me to be of a different character and, and attracts a different kind of analysis than, than, a, than, a, than a statement like any individual. Right? But I leave it alone. Can I? Can I oh. Well, I, I just to follow up on this and, and to pick up on the, the, the comparison to the punch in the face and what, what happened here. I was surprised that the Court of Appeal, after it may have parsed, as, as you say, with, in paragraph 65 with a reference to a, a woman and then moving to any complainant in 66, I was surprised, and maybe you can help me understand it, whether it was appropriate for the court to say that when it commented that this was not grounded in the evidence, that it engages questions of neurology, physiology, and psychiatry. I wondered why it engages those questions. One wouldn't have thought, for example, a punch in the face would require that kind of demonstration, and yet here it does, maybe reflecting the special character of the context here. Do you have any thoughts about their, that, that paragraph 67 of the, the Court of Appeals reasons? Yes, we don't agree uh, that the observation in question would require expertise in those fields. What I would say is that it is another example in my submission of the problem with the rule against ungrounded common sense assumptions because as the rule is framed, there is an application of it that the assumption itself has to be grounded in the evidence. Um, and this is such an example, I would say, where the Court of Appeal approached and applied the rule by saying it's not a matter of judicial notice and the, there's no evidence to support the judge's finding, and in the Court of Appeals' view, it was a matter of expertise and wasn't a matter of common sense. And in my submission, that also, it is a, a further reflection of problems with uh, sex assault law and how these cases are, are being decided. Because there is no reason in my submission why the type of observation at issue, penetration of a vagina, should attract different evidentiary rules, different applications of common sense than other physical assaults on a body, on the body. Ms. Elliot, about uh, the fact that you said that reasons have to be read uh, contextually, functionally, and as a whole, it seems that the Court of Appeal at paragraph 64 acknowledges that. They say that uh, reasons have to be read contextually, functionally, and as a whole. And in the following paragraph, the Court of Appeal says, but here there is no need to parse. So they say, and they continue in paragraph 65, and it seems that the Court of Appeal read the reasons as a whole because they say no need to parse. And when they read everything and they recognize that the judge uh, noted the complainant's testimony was corroborated by the party's state of undress, uh, the primary reason uh, the judge accepted the complainant's core assertion is contained in the, in the famous single sentence. So you say that the Court of Appeal passed the reasons, but it seems that uh, if I read their reasoning, they did not do that. 
I agree that the Court of Appeal correctly instructed themselves on the law. What I disagree with is that the primary reason is contained in that single sentence. In my submission, the, a fair reading of the reasons, and even if the judge is ambiguous, the presumption that the judge correctly applied the law should prevail. A fair reading of the reasons is that the judge convicted because he believed and accepted her evidence about what she felt. But I guess you would go a step further on going on the basis of what you said in your introduction that because it's not unreasonable and on the basis of the record, it's not infected by a palpable and overriding error and the Court of Appeal should have deferred to it. That, that, that's the sequence. I, I, beyond not part, I mean, they can say three times that a horse is a zebra. That doesn't turn a horse into a zebra. The, the, they may have been parsing, even though they're saying they're not. But beyond that, that as an appellate court, they could only intervene had they identified a palpable and overriding error, which they did not do. Correct. I think the court has my points on saying, and so, or is it Croc? So at this point, I propose to move on to saying. We take the same position with respect to saying, that being that the BC Court of Appeal did not conduct a functional and contextual review of the reasons as well. We submit that the trial judge Judge's credibility findings were the product of an evidence-based and context-specific assessments of the witness testimony, and that the judge did not make the three unsupported inferences identified by the Court of Appeal. In my submission, it's an important point to step back and look at what the judge in these reasons was finding. And in my submission, the judge believed the complainant, accepted her evidence, rejected the respondent's evidence where it conflicted, and overall did not accept his portrayal of himself as this solicitous man who was merely trying to please this woman who was persistently pursuing him. She rejected it as internally and externally inconsistent and contrived. And again, in saying I say, the BC Court of Appeals reasons illustrate how application of this rule invites parsing of reasons in search of problems. It's an interesting development in that what started as four alleged impermissible inferences uh, advanced by the respondent Three of them were okay. The Court of Appeal decided that they were, uh, fell within the class of inferences that may fairly be drawn. But then they identified two more. So in total, we have the three unsupported inferences. And again, just to reiterate, none of the unsupported inferences amounted to legal error but I would also say palpable and overriding error as well. Can, can I ask you about the third one? I mean, you'll perhaps, you'll perhaps have comments on each one, and so I don't mean to cut. Just the, the, the one that, speaking for myself, that gave me the, 
most pause was the third one. That is to say, when the, the, view, the trial judge's views about whether Mr. Tsang abruptly drove away after he dropped off the complainant, what that, what that meant. And I'm interested by the argument and your response to the argument from the respondent in his factum, paragraphs 95 and 96, where he says, at the beginning of 96, there is no normal or expected way for people to behave after sexual activity, which, is, which I thought was an interesting way to put it, because in a manner of speaking, it is embracing problematic, stereotypical reasoning that happens in sexual assault circumstances. And I'm wondering if here, this, is, this third example poses a, a particular problem for the analysis. The first point I would make is, in my submission, there's no question that this judge was performing a context-specific analysis, that she's not talking about people generally. Her analysis is very driven by what the respondent did and what the complainant did. I agree her language isn't perfect, but when I look at the reasons, at her reasons, and in particular, the paragraph that I understand is, is highlighted, it's paragraph 153. I would just note that at paragraph one, one second, 132, the judge has already rejected much of what Mr. Sang said as incapable of belief, highly improbable, and self-serving. And then the judge is purporting to move on to examine the Crown's case within the third prong of WD. Now, I accept that when I keep moving, the judge does cycle back and uh, circle back and talk about the accused evidence as well. Paragraph 153, when I read it, in my submission, and, and again, I say it's, it's, it's not perfect, but what the judge is talking about is the complainant's testimony. So she finds this fact more consistent with the complainant's claim of non-consensual sex than with Mr. Sang's version of what has just happened. So it's very much grounded in their respective evidence about what occurred uh, after the sexual activity. And of course, we have internal inconsistency in Mr. Sang's evidence as well, because he describes himself as they were kissing, cuddling, she kissed him on the cheek, he waved goodbye, she got her stuff from the trunk. And her evidence was none of that happened. Basically, I was dumped on the sidewalk and he sped away. So the next sentence that's, that's particularly impugned, when the judge says he took off right away because of what he had just done to her and because she meant nothing to him, it, in my submission, it could be read as a summary of her evidence. It, that's what she explained in her testimony. She explained that it was significant to her that he drove away so quickly and at that point in time, while she was still processing things, um, she felt that it was disrespectful. So in my submission, and it's not 
it's not perfectly clear, but what the judge is doing there is actually looking at the manner of departure which everyone more or less agreed. He sped away. I think he downplayed it uh, in his evidence, but in terms of how it connected with what the two parties were saying was happening at the time. Do you agree that, uh, or is it your position, because you've characterized, to Justice Kazira's question, you've characterized it as being palpable and overriding error, but do you agree that if it is a stereotype, if it is founded on a stereotype, it would be an error of law, but it would be an inconsequential error of law in view of everything else that the trial judge found, and so uh, it would still be an, an appeal that was, should have been properly dismissed under 686B2, I guess. So it's, it's an, even Justice Pachoco and JC recognized, you know, an error of law that's inconsequential wouldn't actually change, uh, lead to a different result. So do you, do you agree with that sort of way of looking at the issue? In part, in part. I, I, I do not agree that it is, this is an instance of stereotypical reasoning for the reasons that I set out at the beginning. In my submission, um, what is happening here is, is not, doesn't rise to the level of the type of stereotypical reasoning that I say is, is protected under the rule of law. But accepting that I'm wrong about that, and this is stereotypical reasoning, it would be an error of law, and our position would be uh, that it could be cured under the proviso. May I ask you a question that goes, uh, I think arises more from the, the, the context and facts of saying, but, uh, and that's, what's the role of the possible in terms of uh, common sense and generalizations? Um, because we can say, I mean, fact finding is all about what is more likely based on this person, based on other people. Uh, there's a whole composite of things that go into that. But when we're talking about a generalization that it can be the basis of common sense, uh, how do we deal with the existence that the generalization isn't arising in this case? Because it's about what normally happens, normal behavior. Um, and, and how do we deal with that? Can we still say that the generalization still exists, but it's a generalization? So, of course, uh, something, it's possible that it, it's, it's, it's not the case. How would you have us deal with that conceptually? Conceptually, in my submission, the emphasis, and it is placed on the, by the Court of Appeal, and it's repeated through a number of cases, on the fact that anything is, uh, that it's possible is very problematic in sexual assault cases because we know anything is possible and it applies generally across all offenses. But it's not emphasized in the armed robbery and those sorts of cases, but there's a, there's a emphasis placed on it's possible in sexual assault cases, which is being used in my submission to undermine a trial judge's ability to actually resolve these cases. One of, the, one of the things that I find elusive and personally problematic here is that we're going to have a list of stereotypes and myths. And if you make it on that list, it's treated in a completely different way than if it doesn't make it on the list. And one of the things we're now confronting is if someone says, 
hop out, see you later, drives off. That's part of, you know, versus that was lovely, you know, I hope I see you again, you know, it's, it's a wonderful evening, etc. That somehow, now, if that gets captured within a, in a stereotype, you treat the evidence relating to the manner of the departure, whether it's sort of thoughtful or whether it's very coarse, is, is now treated in one way because it's, it's, you've, you've managed to get it into the category of a stereotype. And like, where, where's the boundary of this thing? And the whole fight is going to be, is this, is this so related to human sexual behavior that we now categorize it as a myth or a stereotype and we, we treat it on appellate review in a different way. I mean, this is, this is going to be the new game. And, 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 and the fact that you're saying, well, maybe it's a stereotype, maybe it's not. I think it's, it's illustrative of the problem that you are urging on us to incorporate into the jurisprudence. So, I, I don't agree that stereotypical reasoning is only exists because it's related to human sexual behavior. In my submission, it's related to problematic myths that have infected reasoning. And that I, and it sort of links up to Justice Martin's question. Are we supposed to read section 15 into all this and say, look, you know, there's groups that have historically been discriminated against, and there's one set of rules for them, another set of rules for somebody else. It's like, how do you, how do you ascertain uh, this, these, these stereotypes and these myths? Because that's critical, is it not, to your whole uh, framework? It is, and in my submission, the case law assists in identifying the myths and stereotypes. But I do appreciate, I believe, your point, Justice Rowe. There is an issue, as I believe I said at the beginning, of where to draw the line. Where do we draw the line between prohibited application of common sense and permiss permissible application of common sense? In my submission, I'm suggesting a line where it could draw. Um, the court may see otherwise, but my but, submission- But your line is not about plausibility. Your line is about categories. It's about certain particularly sensitive and egregious uh, phenomenon in our society. And there's one set of rules which will apply there because they get labels, myths, and stereotypes. But even if something which is very ill-founded in terms of understanding of human behavior is stated by a trial judge, that's, that's to be treated in a different manner. And, and I just find it, uh, well, interesting that that's the, the way in which the world of evidence is to be treated. Is part of the, is part of the problem that we need to, rec think, I'm thinking of opinions in Seaboyer, this is an old case, that part of the pernicious character of stereotypical reasoning and the bias that goes with it is, is, is baked into the history of the law of consent in respect of crimes of sexual violence, that we can acknowledge that. Can't we do that? You, you've mentioned bias, but part of the history of the law itself, is, is that not relevant to the way in which the myths and stereotypes are relevant as questions of law? 
In, in my submission, it is, as, is it, as it's also relevant that Parliament sought to intervene. And uh, Parliament is, Parliament's actions also created a separate way, what I say should be treated separately and distinctly. But just to briefly go back to Justice Rowe's question, and again, it will be up to this court where to draw the line. My submission, primarily my submission is, that where the line is presently drawn is not the right place. Because where the line is presently drawn with the acceptance of this rule against ungrounded common sense assumptions that need to be grounded in evidence or supported by judicial notice is too great an incursion into a judge's ability to use common sense in order to resolve these cases. And it invites appellate deference or appellate review. Uh, essentially, when they disagree, and in, and in my submission that occurs in saying, when the, when the appeal court disagrees with the trial judge's reasoning, under this rule, it's a license to intervene. And in my submission, that occurred with respect to the first identified error. And I'll move quickly. I, could I ask you about the, the whole issue that Justice Kazira just raised and Justice Rowe just raised? Perhaps it's inevitable in this area because the function of these categories, stereotype, common sense, is that they're sort of argument stoppers. You don't really, once you come within the, the shelter of common sense, it's okay. Once you come within the shelter or the characterization of stereotype, it's not okay. But they are categories that the law uses and perhaps it's inevitable, but Justice Rowe's concern about, you know, uh, a good list and a bad list is, is a real concern, but I wonder whether it's sort of inevitable in the language that the, the law uses for common sense or stereotypes. Yes, I would agree. I would agree, and it's, it's a question of how to define the line as well as where to draw the line. So the first, the first error, and this is just illustrative of the point I was, I was making, um, the first error the Court of Appeal identified was that the judge employed an assumption about what activity the complainant might have willing, willingly engaged in. And in this point, I'll, I'll be brief, but I'll just make a couple of points. Uh, further to Justice Rowe's earlier comment that, you know, you see these things, you can see it's illogical, it's there to be seen. This was very much not there to be seen, and in my submission, very much read in by the Court, court of Appeal. In, I say the judge did not assume anything. The complainant testified about what she consented to. And what really, in my submission, is happening here is the BC Court of Appeal did not agree with the weight the trial judge assigned to events that preceded those that occurred in the back seat of the car. This is the type of assessment I say that the trial judge was entitled to make and it was owed deference. And this is also the point where in my submission, by substituting its own view, and this is the point that uh, Leaf makes very clearly, the, the Court of Appeal itself seems to start engaging in problematic reasoning. And then the second assumption uh, that a controlling person would not abstain from unprotected sex. Again, when I read the paragraph, it's not 
explicit that there's any, uh, assuming it exists, ungrounded common sense assumption there. This is a context-specific assessment in my submission. And the trial judge was rejecting the respondent's account that he sought to respect the complainant's wishes for protected sex as inconsistent with his callous disregard for her well-being. It's a continuation, as I started at the outset, the judge rejected from beginning to end Mr. Sang's evidence that he was this good guy, just uh, trying to help out this girl, please this girl who was after him, and she rejected it from beginning to end as internally and externally consistent and contrived, and she was entitled to do so. I note the time, and subject to any questions, I will hand it over to my colleague, Ms. Lusk. Thank you. So I believe the court has the appellant's primary position, which is that this court ought not to endorse uh, what has become known as the rule against ungrounded common sense assumptions as an independent ground of appeal or as a question of law. Credibility findings as findings of fact are subject to the deferential standard of review of palpable and overriding error. An absent palpable and overriding error, the question remains unreasonable verdict. So with that primary position in mind, if this court were to endorse a rule against common, ungrounded common sense assumptions as a type of legal error, then the question would arise as to whether a mere violation of that rule in terms of drawing an ungrounded common sense assumption would amount to an error of law within the meaning of 686-1A2 uh, or whether more would be required. And so the appellant's alternative position, if this court were to characterize that as a legal error, is that more is required. Uh, similar to how more is required if there's a legal error with um, impermissible stereotypical reasoning. And that more is materiality. And when I say materiality... Doesn't, doesn't this get us into the proviso? Because you can have an error of law at, at a trial and, and persuade an appellate court, well, there was an error of law, but the, the court looks down and says, yes, but it was of no consequence. It really didn't matter in terms of the verdict. And so you, you get to the same result. Yes, but there's a distinction between an appellant establishing that there has been an error which warrants appellate review and the Crown establishing once that legal error has been uh, has met the test under 686-1A2 that the curative proviso should apply in relation to the verdict. 
So here, what we're saying is for two reasons, materiality is required. First, because the statute does um, capture wrong decisions on questions of law, and it's not every error that warrants appellate review. And two, because of this court's jurisprudence with respect to the need to consider reasons functionally and contextually, and to assess the reasons as a whole um, in assessing whether there has been a legal error. So essentially what we're saying is, is that it doesn't necessarily matter if there has been um, an ungrounded common sense assumption that's been drawn, if that assumption is, for example, neither used or was um, peripheral or had no material consequence on the factual, impugned factual finding an issue. So in this case, the appellant's position is that if this is an error of law uh, or a legal question, then the onus is on the respondent in this case to establish that that error was material to the finding of credibility. And then the onus would shift to the Crown at that point under 686 1B3 to establish no substantial wrong or miscarriage of justice. Now we recognize that in a case like this, like these cases, Kraken saying, where credibility is determinative, as it so often is in sexual assault cases, there will be some overlap in terms of the type of analysis uh, that happens. Because um, if an error is material to the credibility finding, it may make it more difficult for the Crown to establish um, that it was harmless in terms of having no impact on the verdict. But at the materiality stage, the focus is on the impugned factual finding. Was the assumption the basis for a material factual finding? And then at the curative stage, the Crown is called upon to show that it had no impact on the verdict or that the evidence was so overwhelming that any judge would have convicted. So Justice Jamal, you were um, suggesting with respect to um, the assumption, Justice Kazir, that, that uh, you've identified as potentially problematic, the, um, the idea of leaving the scene quickly as being inconsistent with uh, a consensual sexual encounter. And again, my, friend, uh, my colleague has done a very good job of setting out the appellant's primary position, which is that this was an actual assessment based on the totality of the evidence when the reasons are looked at as a whole because um, of the internal inconsistencies that the judge is identifying in, the, uh, in Mr. Sang's account of cuddling and kissing and being very pleased with the sexual encounter and that inconsistency with not wanting to see her and rushing off so quickly, all inconsistent with his characterization of himself as being solicited, solicitous and caring towards the complainant. But if this court were to find um, that 
that comment by the judge uh, amounted to impermissible stereotype, then the question would be, um, does, did the credibility finding, did it matter to the credibility finding? Even if the finding was yes, Justice Jamal, as you have set out, this is an inconsequential finding overall. That piece of evidence, um, as my friend has stated, the, the impugned paragraph at paragraph 153 um, is a paragraph that comes sometime after the judge has rejected much of Mr. Sang's evidence and um, she's conducting the further WD analysis. And Ms. Lusk, in the Croc case, if we come to the conclusion that it was impermissible reasoning, uh, are you of the view that the finding that women are unlikely to be mistaken about the feeling of penetration was dispositive as to whether the assault happened in the case? It was certainly important. Okay. Yes. Thank you. When we get back to Mr. Tsang and the, the, the method of departure, aren't we kind of in the area of after-the-fact conduct? I mean, and, and how material is after-the-fact conduct in relation to determining what did, in fact, happen in, at, at a prior point in time? Yes, in some sense, we are. It's, it's almost... It, it, it raises similar issues as after the fact conduct. And, and Justice Martin, I'm thinking about your reasons in Kalnan now <laughs> and how, how um, really it's left to the trier of fact to determine whether um, an inference about guilt um, is to be drawn because of uh, that behavior's concurrence with expected behavior of a guilty person or whether there's some other acceptable explanation. If this court were to find that that's essentially not evidence from which an inference could be drawn, the difficulty is that it's not like drawing an inference from a piece of evidence. Um, but I, I guess part of what I'm saying there as well is though the law recognizes that in the after-the-fact conduct situation, there are generalizations of human conduct that, that are at the core of the reasoning that, that's conducted. What behavior is more consonant with a consciousness of guilt? And so we accept that that's a, a legally permitted method of analysis. And so... Yes, exactly. And, and those examples are set out in our factum. And it is fundamental to our judicial system that judges be able to assess based on reason uh, and common sense logically tied to the evidence, um, the plausibility of certain accounts. And so in terms of credibility and the underlying evidence, whether to accept that evidence provided that isn't based on an impermissible stereotype, then the question is an impermissible stereotype that in a sense amounts to palpable and overriding error. What, what role did this play? And here it played 
uh, very little to no role in the judge's overall assessment in rejecting Mr. Sang's testimony as to what occurred in that vehicle and his explanations of consent. And we see that. Um, we say the BCCA erred in its materiality assessment. It ought to have considered, as we've set out at paragraphs 113 to 119, not just where, whether other evidence supported uh, the judge's credibility findings, but her actual reasoning and what was significant to her. Because this wasn't significant, the manner in which he left. What was significant was her rejection of his testimony, um, not corresponding with that of LF and LBB with respect to the pre-parking lot behavior, um, her acceptance of LBV's evidence with respect to her behavior within that car as um, conflicting with that of Mr. Sang, and finally, um, the expert evidence, which we say the Court of Appeal did not actually find was an error in terms of admissibility um, and legitimately played a role in the judge's analysis. So, um, so just to turn for a moment, we say materiality was required as a step in the analysis if any sort of um, question of the law is identified in order to establish whether it's the kind of legal error that falls within 686-1A2. Um, if this court were to find such a legal error, then in saying, uh, certainly we would say no substantial wrong or miscarriage of justice occurred. Um, and I want to turn now to my friend's position because I understand he's going to be suggesting to this court that no materiality analysis is required, that simply drawing an ungrounded common sense assumption is sufficient to establish legal error regardless of materiality or whether it was used or how it was used in the reasons as a whole. We say that's wrong, but um, and he says that instead, the onus should be on the Crown to establish harmlessness. Um, in this case, as I've said, the two analyses will be somewhat similar because credibility, which is the material fact, is determinative of the verdict in these cases. That won't always be the case when we're concerned about general evidentiary rules. But he also says that no materiality is required. The onus immediately shifts to the Crown to show no substantial wrong or miscarriage of justice. And in credibility cases, he says, it's very difficult for the Crown to rely on the curative proviso, essentially that the case has to be staggering. And so what we're left with then is an example of how far this um, rule and proposed application of the rule how far afield we are again from this court's repeated um but you see that doesn't conform with khan at all i mean khan lays out the two yardsticks it's either uh, you have a, an overwhelming case and so it wouldn't have mattered or or it just was not such as it could affect the verdict and if anyone wants to come in and tell us that we should revisit khan you know Let's see, but I mean, Khan is it's pretty clear on that. And so uh, if, when you get to the proviso, 
if, if there's a sense that this could have affected the verdict, well, everybody's entitled to a fair trial, aren't they? Yes, everybody's entitled to a fair trial, and certainly under the curative proviso, if materiality has been established, then the onus is on the Crown to establish that it's either harmless in terms of uh, there being no reasonable possibility that it impacted the verdict, or no reasonable possibility that there would uh, be a different verdict, or that the case was overwhelming. But, and nobody's revisiting Khan. But what my friend is pointing out is that in credibility cases, if we were to say, okay, materiality, did this make, for example, any difference to the credibility assessment? Because that's what he's suggesting, essentially, just you mention it in the course of assessing credibility and there's an, a legal error. Um, can the Crown then establish by pointing to other um, other considerations of the judge under the curative proviso as being compelling enough for the judge to overwhelm that, that mention. And perhaps we had that in Paulos, but it's going to be very difficult to do with credibility because credibility is a finding of fact. It's difficult to parse in some cases, um, in most cases. And ultimately, what I understand him to be saying is that in credibility cases, it is going to be very difficult for the Crown to rely on the curative proviso. And that shows how far afield and the danger of that Justice Obonsoin, um, another danger of identifying this as a legal error and how far afield we're going from palpable and overriding error because one of the reasons that the curative proviso is difficult to apply in cases where credibility is determinative is because um, credibility is a finding of fact. So generally, when you're getting to the curative, there's been some other error, some error, for example, of uh, inadmissible evidence being admitted. And then the question is, well, would that have affected this credibility assessment? But this... Um, particular situation is quite unique. As we've said, it's in sexual assault cases that this rule is being raised and applied, and we say being applied in a way that undermines the palpable and overriding standard that ought to apply to frontline judges sitting, hearing these witnesses, and deciding whether they believe them or not. And very simply, there ought to be a palpable and overriding, overriding error present before an appellate court is entitled to intervene, or that decision ought to be unreasonable as unsupportable on any version of the evidence. And here, in neither case, we had any of those. To su so subject to any questions, those are the appellant's submissions.
Good morning, Chief Justice. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. We can't. Uh, we can hear you. Sorry. Thank you. Uh, if uh, if the court is ready, I'm prepared to proceed. Please go ahead. Thank you. Good morning, Chief Justices and Justices of the Court. Uh, Alberta would like to follow up on a few of the questions posed by this court, but really essentially restrict its submissions to two issues. One, the role of common sense, and two, the definitions that we ask this court to provide guidance on. Dealing firstly with Justice Jamal's question with respect to the rule in JC generally. Uh, Justice Jamal, you posed the question to my friend that the proposition in paragraph 58 is not particularly innocuous. Alberta agrees. The question and the issue really arises in paragraph 61, the last sentence of that decision, where it states that it prohibits judges from using common sense or human experience to introduce new considerations not arising from the evidence into the decision-making process, including considerations about human behavior. That is the issue with the rule prescribed in JC, because it lends itself to mischief, particularly in sexual assault prosecutions. I would suggest, please, that this court look at the comments of the British Columbia Court of Appeal decision at paragraph 53 in saying, where it criticizes the court, uh, the trial judge specifically, for not having evidence of what activity the complainant might have willingly engaged in after she willingly engaged in some sexual foreplay. That evidence is prohibited. Also, I would ask you please to look to the statement in paragraph 96 of JC, where again, the court questioned whether there was evidence particular to the case or any evidence before him on how all sexual encounters unfold. But isn't there that also paragraph 62? The issue of paragraph 62, when he talks about had there been evidence uh, that she was careful or concerned about her appearance, etc. Isn't that another example? It is. It is another example. But the issue that we have here that we really have to address in, the, in Alberta's uh, specific uh, position is that the common sense of the judges cannot be grounded in uh, cannot be grounded in the evidence or subject to judicial notice. So specifically what I would suggest uh, to Justice Rowe's question is Justice Rowe, you were concerned that we were simply asking for new rules, different rules in response to uh, sexual assault prosecutions. Respectfully, Alberta is doing the opposite. Common sense is open to triers of fact in all other offenses for all other types of evidence. Specifically, unsavory witnesses evidence is open pursuant to Vetrovic and Weedle out of the Ontario Court of Appeal. Similar fact evidence allows for a judge to use their common sense, reasonable doubt, and circumstantial evidence. Alberta asks that this same principle simply be maintained in sexual assault prosecutions. That, law, that common sense must include logic, life experience, and expectations of normal human behavior. In the Crown's respectful submission, it's necessary for a few reasons. Firstly, it's the only way to assess the arguments objectively. Second, it's the only way to assess if the evidence is reasonable. And thirdly, it's the only way to determine if the evidence of the witnesses themselves is believable. Whether you reject the rule in JC outright or accept but clarify it, we ask that you confirm that triers of fact must be allowed to use their common sense when assessing the evidence before them. 
<clears throat> precluding judges and juries from using their common sense to assess evidence would leave the testimony of a witness completely subjective and immune from judicial scrutiny. That is why the rule in JC and Sang, as well as the positions of the interveners, is untenable. My second point, if I may, is simply to point out that the real issue in this case is arising because there is a lack of clarity on the terms used. Justice Rowe, Justice Cassier, and I believe um, Justice Jamal as well, you all addressed different terms for different things. We ask this court to confirm definitions for myths, stereotypes, generalizations, and common sense. Alberta suggests that they are very different concepts, that they have very different historical developments, and language is important. That's what Seaboyer is all about. I would point you no further. Well, than I'm, go I'm, going to put a, I'm going to put a proposition to you that yes, unfounded sir. assumptions or unfounded, ill-founded uh, views as to human behavior is the general category, which can include things like speculation, but it can also include stereotypes which are not an accurate view of uh, human behavior because they treat members of a group as, as having common characteristics, oftentimes in a pejorative way. Uh, and then myths is uh, another instance of ill-founded assumptions or generalizations that relate to human uh, uh, sexual activity. So, if you want one working definition, these ill-founded generalizations is the general category in which there are two specific instances, myths and stereotypes, which can be uh, usefully identified because they are so significant when dealing with vulnerable groups in the case of stereotypes or the situation of uh, vulnerable persons when you're talking about myths. So there you go. If you want a working uh, uh, framework, that's sort of my working suggestion for the moment. I see that my time is up, Chief Justice. Oh, yes, you have some you? comments. Um, May I just ask, uh, uh, if, if I might? Go ahead. Maybe one difference then between, in light of what you have in paragraph 20, is that common sense as, uh, and its role in the reasoning process is subject to refutation uh, on the evidence, whereas judicial notice when you take judicial notice of something, that's uh, by, by definition, it isn't subject to refutation. So that may be one difference between, and that's why, I mean, looking at it that way, why the issue of, um, uh, y you know, somebody feeling whether they're punched or feeling uh, somebody's penetrated them uh, is common sense rather than judicial notice because it, it is subject to refutation. They may think that they have been punched, but it may actually be that there was something flying in the wind that hit them in the face uh, that they weren't aware of. So it is subject, that may be a distinction in light of what you've just said. And I'm afraid I don't have the perfect answers. There, I fully appreciate, sorry, Chief Justice, I know I'm out of time, I'll just do one last comment. I appreciate that everyone has different definitions. Uh, Justice Jamal, you've posed one solution to the issue. Justice Rowe, you've posed another issue to the solution. 
Alberta simply asks that you provide guidance to the lower courts. Whatever that solution may be, it should be clear, it should be concise, and it should recognize the very different types of offenses that appear regularly before this court. Thank you very Subject much. to any questions, those are my submissions. Thank you. The court will take its morning break. 15 minutes. Thank you. Please be seated. Mr. Anderson. issue in the respondent's case was whether the Crown had proven beyond a reasonable doubt that a sexual act occurred on the basis of admissible evidence. The trial judge had significant concerns about the reliability of the complainant's core allegation because of her extreme intoxication. This wasn't a common scenario, this was an extreme scenario which is why the trial judge was so concerned about the reliability of her evidence. How did the trial judge overcome that acute concern? He relied on his own speculative assumption about what a woman would feel to convict the appellant. And by doing so, he rendered the, appellant, the uh, respondent's trial fundamentally unfair for two reasons. First, he constructed an artificial presumption of reliability. The finding of what a hypothetical woman would feel, particularly in these extreme circumstances, was not common sense, nor was it the proper subject of judicial notice. And the trial judge was not entitled to find this complainant could not be mistaken because no woman was mistaken. That's the first reason that the, the respondent's trial was unfair. The second reason is that the respondent had no opportunity to respond to that finding. He was not aware that the case he had to meet included the trial judge's own personal assumptions in addition to the complainant's evidence. The appellant says that the uh, trial judge's concerns with respect to the complainant's reliability were grounded in his common sense. They weren't. They were grounded in what the evidence uh, was before him. And that evidence was as follows. The complainant had consumed upwards of 15 or more alcoholic beverages. According to her friend, the last time she saw the complainant, she was unable to uh, form coherent sentences. That's at page 70, lines 1 to 5 of the transcript. She was unable to communicate to a cab driver 
where she lived when the respondent put her in a cab and attempted to send her home to her parents. She was in a slumber so deep that the respondent's father was unable to rouse her when he tried to shake her awake. In fact, when she did wake up, she didn't feel any movement. She was specifically asked, did uh, you feel him moving inside of you at all? No, not when I woke up, despite on her version, the, the appellant having to withdraw if that was the case. She was unable to say what she was touching with her bare hands on two occasions at that crucial moment. She wandered around a house for 10 minutes without being able to uh, work any functioning light switches. She was freaked out by innocuous items in the uh, respondent's home, like children's toys. And her own father described her as, quote, wasted, end quote, and, quote, pretty out of it when he first saw her within five to ten minutes of the alleged assault. And finally, the alcohol content in her system was almost three times the legal limit to drive a motor vehicle between two and a half and six uh, hours later. So those were the facts that gave rise to the trial judge's very founded and significant concerns with respect to the reliability of her evidence. Now the appellant says, no, the trial judge's concerns with respect to reliability were just general concerns. They were not concerns with respect to the crucial moment in time or the core of her allegation. So the first place I'll turn is to my uh, condensed book at tab one of the condensed book, which is an excerpt from submissions made by trial counsel for the respondent. And of course, in reviewing what the, what, uh, the trial judge's reasons mean, the court has to look at the entire record, including the submissions of counsel, starting at page uh, 320, line 27, the court says as follows, and I understand it, you, you make the very sound and really obvious point that because of her state of extreme intoxication, there's an overarching element of unreliability to all of her evidence, including her perceptions of what was happening at all the critical times. So that was the judge's nascent view with respect to the complaint. That was the judge's question to counsel. Right. Right. And, and so despite how it's phrased, I don't think that we have a judgment. And so shouldn't we put the emphasis on the judgment? Because shouldn't a trial judge be allowed to explore anything they want at, at the closing submission time? Of course. But it does assist as an interpretive aid in determining what the trial judge's reasons mean. The, the, the court who's reviewing Do you have reasons. any legal authority for that proposition in uh, terms yeah. of uh, that we take a context of a question rather than the judgment itself? I think you take them together. And the legal authority is R versus Dubois, 1982 SCR 21, affirming the uh, Alberta, or the, sorry, the Court of Appeal uh, dissenting reasons wherein the uh, colloquy with counsel was uh, a very important consideration in terms of interpretation. So the citation again, 1982 SCR 21. 
So that was the uh, judges. Because of this is uh, so. I'm trying to. Uh, is it because it was a um, uh, case of sexual violence, though, that the the um, you needed notice of what was going to be relied on, and the finding couldn't be made without the psychiatrist and the neurologist. So I'm trying to understand why there is a special call for expert evidence about this particular form of violence and not for other forms of violence, even when a person is wasted, highly intoxicated. Um, because I can't imagine that in a case of a physical assault, a judge would be precluded from drawing everyday inferences without expert evidence. So what is it about this situation that calls for that sort of notice and evidence? And I think that, uh, Justice Jamal, you're referring to the um, comments by the Court of Appeal in that regard. And first of all, I'll concede that those were some unfortunate comments that the court made, but they were made in a certain context. And the context was, what evidence would be required to ground such a wide-sweeping generalization, which is the finding that the trial judge made in this case? Not, can this particular complainant be believed, or can... Uh, a particular complaint be believed, the comment was uh, it would be extremely unlikely that a woman without any qualifier at all could be mistaken. To come up with that extreme generalization, that extreme generalization, perhaps that evidence would be required. But in any event, uh, that comment by the Court of Appeal is really not depositive of its reasoning process. So I don't know that uh, I have to spend a whole lot of time. Well, you, I think you do, respectfully, because that turn of phrase, when you read it as we've been instructed by the jurisprudence of this court to read it in the context of the whole of the judgment, doesn't have just one easy, plain interpretation, as the Court of Appeal suggested. Um, it is unclear whether the trial judge was speaking to all women or a woman in these exact circumstances or this woman, it's not clear. And there's jurisprudence of this court, GF, very recent jurisprudence, that says where a trial judgment is open to multiple interpretations, those that are consistent with the presumption of the correct application of the law must be preferred over those that suggest error. So perhaps it's not just parsing doesn't just mean get out your microscope and find a, an error. It is the spirit in which you read and the presumption that we owe trial judges that they don't make mistakes even if there's occasionally an unfortunate turn of phrase or one that, as GF says, lends itself to multiple interpretations. So how would you answer GF? Well, what do we do with that presumption? Has it been overcome? With respect, I think that the words that a trial judge uses in reasons for judgment are crucially important. Judges generally- A minute, ago, a minute, ago, you said, a minute ago, you told us we had to go to the questions that were answered and posed by counsel in submissions be, to inform us as to what it means. So which, which, which is, uh, which is your position? Is it the judgment, in which case perhaps there's multiple, or is it the judgment as informed by some comments that were made at the hearing that provide us with that sole interpretation? 
I think if, uh, if a trial judge makes a clear expression that has one meaning in plain English, and that, uh, that meaning is uh, erroneous, then at the end of the day, uh, a reviewing court cannot ignore what the trial judge actually said, cannot consider um, an alternate reality where the judge didn't say that, and ha has to actually give meaning to the words that the trial judge used. And that, those were the words that the trial judge used in this case. And furthermore, there are a lot of different examples where similar wording used by trial judges, a woman, a girl, a man, have, uh, have been found to be very problematic, where those trial judges have been overturned, an, ex an example is the Perkins decision, where Justice Doherty found uh, that the uh, trial judge's comment about a young, virile man, it being very unlikely or impossible for that individual to lose an erection, a man, that was found to be impermissible judicial notice. So that's just one example of that phrase. Well, my, question, my question was, sorry, I, I don't mean to engage in a debate because I'm not really interested in, in a debate, but my question is, is this not an instance where there are multiple, the Crown has made, the, the, the argument that the, your colleagues on the other side have made, there's, this is, this is maybe an un unfortunate turn of phrase because it's not plain, but it could be read as this woman, it could be read as a reference to circumstances given the context, and in light of that, I'm asking you if it is, if we are unsure about exactly what it meant, is GF an assistance to us that we can presume that the judge was correct on the law, even if the turn of phrase was unfortunate? Because otherwise, courts of appeal are going to be into the parsing game. That's the problem. Well, and, and, the, and this court of appeal was acutely aware of, of GF and of the need not to parse reasons for judgment. It reviewed the record as a whole, it correctly instructed itself on the law, and it concluded that there was no other interpretation to draw from the use by the trial judge of that specific phrase in uh, his acceptance of the complainant's evidence. Um, I'm finish. I didn't mean to One other thing that I'll, I'll, I'll refer to is the trial judge made express findings of fact that the complainant was extremely intoxicated, extremely intoxicated and disoriented at the crucial point in time in paragraph 60 of his reasons for judgment. That's entitled to deference. So it wasn't just a general concern that the trial judge had with respect to reliability. He explicitly found that this complainant was uh, extremely intoxicated and disoriented at the crucial point in time. And the question becomes, if the trial judge had nothing positive to say at any stage about the complainant's credibility, what was the make-weight factor for him? And the make-weight factor for him was his own independent, untethered, and unfair generalization that a woman would not be mistaken about that feeling. That was what happened. That's the reasoning process that the trial judge engaged in in this case. It wasn't oral reasons for judgment delivered immediately after a trial. He had seven weeks to reserve. He chose the words that he, he wanted to choose to explain his reasoning process. 
And those were the words that he used. Those are the words that cannot be ignored by a review okay, but court. Is it an unreasonable generalization? Because if it's not an unreasonable generalization, if it is a comment which comports with the common experience of humankind, then it's, it's, you say, well, this is, this is the framework in which I'm evaluating this. So your argument only succeeds if this is an unreasonable generalization, unless you're going to put to us that a generalization of this character, no matter whether it's based on human experience or not, is, is not to be considered. And I, I agree it is an unreasonable generalization. And the point is that the trial judge did not provide any qualifiers on that comment. No, but you, 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 you stated your position. But I, I, I remain to be convinced that this was an unreasonable generalization. You're just assuming that by saying it's an unreasonable generalization, you have carried the day. Perhaps you will carry the day in it. But I haven't heard any argument uh, as to why it's unreasonable. Well, is, was that a matter within, within common sense? As I stated at the outset, this was not a common circumstance. This was an extreme circumstance. An a circumstance where, as I've just been through, the complainant was so severely intoxicated. Okay, I'll try one more time, then I'll leave you alone. All right. The, the logic that I took from the trial judge's reasons was a person in this situation, a woman in this situation, would have been aware of what was occurring, right? the, 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 that she was being penetrated by the man. And then he had to say, I now have to look at that general proposition. Was there something about the state of mind and, and, and the clarity of thinking of the complainant such that she might be mistaken because she was heavily intoxicated? And to me, that sort of is a logical sequence. Ordinarily, a woman would be aware of this. But was there something about the particular circumstances of this individual which would undercut that otherwise sound generalization? That's, that's how I read it, anyway. And I, that may, that, that's sound ordinarily, which would be the key word in the question. A woman may be uh, aware of that. But this was not an ordinary circumstance. This was in a circumstance that is so far outside of the norm that it cannot logically be the subject of common sense because it's a circumstance that very few people uh, could even um, relate to. It's just so far outside of the norm. The further the circumstance comes from the norm to the outlying extreme, the less likely that it's a matter of common sense. And those were the facts of this case. And, and the, the trial judge said as, as much that she was extremely intoxicated and disoriented at that particular moment in time. But, but you're really... The, oh. the trial judge said that <clears throat> he, he accepted as evidence some, I would say, undisputed facts, like uh, <clears throat> the, state, the party's uh, state of undress. Mm -hmm. And the Court of Appeal is referring to that in paragraph 65. So he accepted some evidence which uh, <clears throat> corroborated, if you want, because he accepted too the testimony of the complainant that uh, she felt some uh, tactile uh, 
thing. And he said, uh, and the, the, the state of undress was not really disputed. It was not uh, proven only by the complainant's testimony. Right, I acknowledge that. And in fact, the Court of Appeal acknowledged that. The trial judge did say that there was some circumstantial evidence consistent with a sexual encounter having occurred. The point that I want to make in relation to that question is that um, in order to succeed on appeal, the respondent was not required to prove or to establish that this error by the trial judge was the sole or only reason as to why the trial judge accepted the complainant's evidence. As long as it was a material re a component of that reasoning process, there's an error in law and the uh, curative proviso, the onus changes to the Crown to invoke the curative proviso. And on that particular uh, topic, one second. Uh, the, um, there's some instructive language with respect to materiality in one of the cases that I'm citing, uh, which is Effectively, if it infected the reasoning process or if it was material to the reasoning process, that's it. There's no requirement that it be the sole reason for, uh, for the finding. And uh, just an authority for that, R versus JM, that case, Justice Brown's uh, characterization at paragraph three the credibility assessment was materially infected, is the way he puts it, which I think is an apt turn of phrase to describe it. Or in JC, Justice Pachoco, at paragraph 73, that it played an, a material or important role in the reasoning process. Would we That's be here if you deleted the last sentence of paragraph 68 of the trial reasons? Would we have, an, would we have had a, if you just deleted it? And I was asked the exact same question in the court below. Uh, the point is, no, we wouldn't, but that, that is what the trial judge said. And up to that point in the, in the reason for judgment, he had expressed nothing but concern about the reliability of the, of the complaint, both generally and in terms of that specific point in time. How did he overcome that concern through, the, through that specific sentence? And so we cannot ignore what he said in order to, which that's what he said and that was his reason. Well, what, what do we make of what the Court of Appeal said in paragraph 61 then about there being a body of evidence on which the judge could convict? Because if you have this blanket reliability, uh, unreliability finding that sort of pervades the whole case, how do you make sense of what the Court of Appeal said? Well, what the Court of Appeal said that, that there was a body of evidence upon which the the trial judge could have convicted. Um, that goes to the point that I was ex explaining earlier. Uh, in order to succeed on this ground, the respondent didn't have to show that 
that was the only reason for accepting the complainant's uh, version of events. If the reasoning process is materially uh, impacted by the error, it, it's immaterial as to whether or not the judge could have otherwise reached that verdict. It doesn't matter. Um, and I think my, my, the appellant has fairly conceded that if the, if the court's with me in terms of that interpretation of the judge's reasoning process, it did play an important role in uh, the judge's acceptance of the complainant's uh, evidence. That's all that has to be established. Um, so uh, in terms of some examples from the case law where very similar turns of phrase by trial judges have been found to amount to errors in law. There's the Perkins decision. Can I stop you here just for a second? I, I, I'm kind of still thinking about your submission that um, we can't rely on common sense because this is a case of extreme intoxication. I would have thought that courts are especially well equipped to deal with intoxication. That's something that's in front of the courts a lot. And even in respect of um, the sexual assault provisions, Extreme intoxication is the kind of thing that leads to there being no ability to have consent in law. So I don't see this as being uh, so extraneous that you would need either judicial notice or expert evidence. Um, and, and so um, why do you say this is, uh, you know, you use adjectives like extreme and, and severe, but there are common sense inferences about extreme and severe intoxication that are available to a court. In, in order, the, so the, tri the trial judge doesn't qualify that very generalized uh, finding. A, it's extremely unlikely that a woman could be mistaken about that feeling. In two respects, he doesn't qualify it. So first of all, he, doesn't, he does not qualify as to the circumstances that the woman finds herself in, simply saying, in any circumstances, in effect, what he's saying. So that's not a common sense inference. Okay, but, but, but you're asking us to interpret it that way. You say that this was a trial judge that was acutely concerned with reliability. I'd agree with that assessment, okay? But it, it, how can he be acutely concerned with reliability throughout the judgment? And then when making a comment, be talking about a woman in the abstract who isn't also intoxicated. Right. And maybe to ask the question more directly, this is a good example of why that's not a common sense inference or circumstances where it's not where the individual, for example, is asleep at the, at the outset of this apparent or alleged sensation. So there's the conscious or issue with consciousness apart from intoxication. Then you layer in that this individual is extremely intoxicated at that time. A finding of the trial judge that that person was also disoriented at the time there's evidence that the individual is making assumptions about states of affairs that are totally wrong. There's no electricity in the house. That's why I can't turn on the lights. I was drugged. That's why I'm at such a level of intoxication. There's evidence that this individual uh, um, was acting inappropriately or unexpectedly to innocuous states of affairs, like the presence of toys in the respondent's home. When you layer all that in, it's just simply not uh, something that can be the subject of common sense. It just isn't. What about it's her memory that she pushed him off? 
that that proceeds. There's no finding about that, but that's sort of the context in which we read the memory about penetration. It, she specifically remembers pushing him off. I know she didn't feel the shirt, or uh, but what do you say about that? Because that's presumably she has to have had a false memory about that too. What? No, she didn't have, no, the, recall that the appellant, sorry, the respondent, who immediately denied that any sexual act had occurred when confronted by the father, and continued to do so throughout the trial, had indicated he was trying to shake her awake, was therefore uh, over top of, of her in that process. And in fact, that reminds me of another factor that I forgot to list previously, this was an uh, individual who was not able to discern what she was touching with her fingers on two occasions. Uh, so that gets factored in as well. And in addition to that, the, the Crown decided to ask her, did you feel him moving inside of you at all in that moment? And she said, no, not when I woke up. How is that even remotely possible that you would not feel someone move inside of you if on your version of events, they necessarily have to withdraw. So we factor all that in and no, it's not a, a, a matter that is properly the subject of common sense. It just isn't. Well, you know, I'm going to give you an example where it's not sexual behavior and no one has had self-induced intoxication. A patient is waking up from a general anesthetic. And if you've ever been under a general anesthetic, when you come out, you come out in a bit of a haze. And the, 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 this is a witness who says, I saw Dr. X arguing with Dr. Y, and then Dr. X stabbed Dr. Y with a, uh, with a scalpel. And then I drifted off back into a haze again. And the judge says, well, you're, you're unlikely to be mistaken about something as dramatic as that. But of course, you're not going to remember the bed sheets or whether the lights were on because you're coming out of a general anesthetic. Some things by their nature are so vivid and dramatic and, 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 and uh, uh, not nuanced, right? I mean, this is a very like, definite thing. Uh, that is it not uh, open to a trial judge to say, as a general proposition, that sort of perception is one that you could make, even if you're uh, not able to recall fine details. Is that not a form of a priori reasoning? Is that not a judge saying, I uh, infer the person must be reliable uh, that it happened because I've already decided it has happened? And I don't think it is. I think it's a judge saying that even a person in a certain state of mind would be in, uh, ordinarily capable of, of making an observation of that nature, but let's see if there's any other evidence which points in the other direction. And which, which there was in this case. But again, I do, I do respectfully submit that that is putting the, the, the cart before the horse in, in, in a way. Um, the, <laughs> The question is whether it happened. Uh, you, I don't know that uh, you can rely on the fact that it happened to prove that it, it did indeed happen. Um, so in terms of some of the case law where uh, very similar articulations on the part of uh, trial judges have been found to amount to error, there is uh, Justice Doherty's decision in Perkins. A young virile man uh, would not lose his erection. A uh, young man, referring to the 
broad and general uh, male population. Um, there are other examples, though, where the, that same type of articulation uh, also amounted to error. So, for example, in the JL case, I cannot accept that a young woman would go outside wearing a dress in mid-December and lie down on dirt and gravel and engage in consensual sexual activity. A young woman. That was an error because the trial judge used those words. In Kodat, it's inconceivable that a 17-year-old girl, that's what was used by the trial judge, would consent to sex with a much older male. I'm just coming back to your comment to your right. Sorry. With regards to JL, and I always evidently have a problem with paragraph 62 in JC. But in there, uh, Justice Pachalco says, had there been evidence from the complainant that she was careful or concerned about her appearance, her clothing, or her physical comfort, the impung inference would have been grounded in evidence and would have been permissible. Do you agree with that? I do. And the, the, there's actually, in, in some respects, there's two distinct concerns with respect to the trial judge's reasoning here. The first is, as I tried to illustrate in some length, the unfairness of the generalization, that the generalization was not properly subject to common sense or um, judicial notice, because it was simply unfair. There's a second component, though. It's not just that it was unfair, it's that it was relating to a hypothetical woman, not to this complainant. There are two distinct problems with the reasoning. And uh, Justice Pachoco, in relation to the, that case summary, is referring to the, predominantly to the second issue, which is also present in our case. You can't just say a woman, as the intervener of uh, uh, Alberta, the Alberta intervener very helpfully sets it, it's not about what a person would do, and I'm going to add or feel, it's about what this person did or felt. So if I were to be in agreement with your argument, it would automatically have to be linked to evidence that was provided in the trial, because otherwise it has to be out. Is that what you're saying? I think when the judge expresses themselves in the manner that the judge did in this case, by saying a woman, that's a finding of fact about not, it's expressly not about this complainant, it's about a woman. So there was no evidence led at trial about what a hypothetical woman in any circumstance would necessarily feel. That, that was not grounded in the evidence. But, but is, it, it, is, it not, uh, is it not sort of self-evident? I mean, how, I mean, is it really a, expected that you're going to put a physiologist in the witness box and, and talk about sensory perception and, and receive, um, you know, expert evidence on, on these matters? I mean, coming back to Justice Jamal's example uh, about being punched in the face. I mean, uh, you can tell if you're punched in the face even if you're uh, intoxicated. I, I think that's a sort of a general proposition. You'll notice it. Um, uh, but it, it, evidence might be led that he was so drunk he ran into a wall and thought somebody punched him. Okay, well, you know, that's you've got the generalization, which is a sound generalization. Ordinarily, you know when you're punched in the face. But if, you, if the evidence is, well, you actually you ran into a wall, then you're sort of, okay, well, that explains it. Right? That, that, that undercuts the testimony. But the, the general proposition that an individual, uh, male or female, knows when they've been punched, 
it seems to me, sits on the same reasonable footing as that a woman knows when a man has penetrated her. But you, you say that that is, a, that is an unwarranted uh, statement and that it, it requires something like scientific evidence. And I'm not, for the moment at least, persuaded that that is so. I mean, I think it depends on the facts of the case, and it depends on how wide-sweeping the particular finding of fact was. And in terms of the uh, example that Justice Jamal gave with respect to someone being punched in the face, I don't know that it's partic particularly um, uh, helpful, because in uh, that scenario, you would have to as assume, for example, if, if the facts of this case were superimposed, the individual who was punched in the face was asleep at the time of the blow. The person was extremely intoxicated. There was evidence that that person could not uh, reliably uh, feel things with that person's hands, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, that, that would be my response uh, to it. But where this wording is used by a trial judge, it's found, uh, it, it's, it's found to be very problematic because judges are assumed to say what they mean. How, how, do, how are we to, um, you've given us kind of stray sentences over here, some stray sentences from, from a series of cases um, and said to us, well, in case X, here's the sentence in this case that was found to be uh, inadmissible uh, speculative reasoning. Are, are, how are we to, to square that mode of analysis that you're putting to us with the injunction that we're not to parse and take things out of context. And I agree, you're, you, it's clear the reviewing court cannot parse. Uh, but a reviewing court can also not ignore the words that are used by the trial judge, particularly if those words are highly material to the reasoning process, which they were in this case. So I don't know that. Uh, Despite those admonitions, a reviewing court uh, is entitled to simply ignore what the plain language of the trial judge's reasons were, unless there's a very good reason to do that. Uh, I don't know that that I don't know that that is uh, that is a proper appellate review, because at the end of the day, um, if it appears that the judge erred and there's, doesn't, there's nothing uh, to the contrary, then the, the meaning has to be given effect to. It's important. Well, but my, my question really wasn't exactly that. It's that you're taking these sentences out of their context and you're saying, look at the, the case, the Doherty case, look at this case, look at that, and giving us one sentence. I think you could acknowledge I'm taking them out of context and I, I suppose what you're saying is, uh, even out of context, they only lend themselves to one meaning. Is that, is that your point? Because my question is, we've been told, uh, and we tell uh, appellate courts, don't read sentences out of context. Thank you for that clarification. I understand the question much better now. Um, and that's correct. You cannot just base it on the one sentence, and I agree with that. In those cases, that sentence was reviewed in the context of the reasons as a whole and the record. In this case, when you review that sentence in the context of the reasons as a whole and the record, there is no other, um, there is no other meaning.
There just isn't in my, in my submission. So I agree. You can't just take those sentences out of context, but I still think those cases are opposite because it's a starting point that judges mean what they say, that that expression is problematic unless there's some uh, very good reason to assume uh, a completely contrary meaning to the plain thrust of what the judge is saying. And the fact that the trial judge in the very next sentence in the judgment the first sentence in paragraph 69 said, there is some circumstantial evidence consistent with a sexual encounter having occurred between the accused and the complainant. Don't forget the, the gravamen of paragraph 68 was whether I am satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that the offense occurred. Is there not a flow there that suggests to us that, well, uh, it was actually contextual, what was being said. Or perhaps it's not entirely sure, and we can fall back on the presumption in GF. And I would res obviously respectfully disagree with that. And the reason for that is... It, you don't have to be particularly respectful. It was just a question. <laughs> right. I, I, don't, I don't think that that's, uh, that, that uh, overcomes the problematic reasoning. The the, it's apparent to everyone that the judge accepted ultimately the complainant's evidence. And in fact, that's where he did that. Once, he'd, once, he'd, once he had decided, I'm going to accept the complainant's evidence, he looks to other uh, circumstantial evidence, some circumstantial evidence of a sexual assault having occurred, sure. But that, that doesn't uh, in any way change the meaning of and the materiality of that sentence, which was how he overcame his very uh, express reliability concerns. So but I, I, what would, about, I would suggest not. Okay, I would go the other way. You're, you're starting from the fact that the statement informs the reliability and credibility finding. What about reading them as a whole so that the, these corroborative things go into the mix and maybe this statement is the add-on, right? Why should we be parsing that it's only this statement? Because that's usually the way you do a credibility assessment, is you say, what's more likely to have happened here? Do I believe this person? You look at, is there a document? Is there evidence? Is there something that's uh, externally logical that supports this? And, and why isn't that enough? Uh, and I'm not saying that there weren't other reasons why the trial judge accepted the evidence of the complaint. I'm not saying that there weren't any other reasons. But I, uh, just to repeat what I said earlier, the, the respondent was not obliged to prove or establish that it was the only reason, simply that it was material to the trial judge's reasoning process to reach that conclusion. Where it's material, or as, my, as the appellants uh, conceded in an important aspect, there's an error, we move on to the curative proviso, which the appellant isn't even uh, raising in this case. So I, I, I agree. It's not that the ju judge had no other reason for accepting uh, the complainant's evidence. It just so happens that a very important reason is contained in that single sentence, which was the finding of the Court of Appeal, and I think is borne out on a contextual review of the reasons as a whole and the record. Mr. Anderson, when you began your submissions before us, you referred to a procedural law. You said right. that this, uh, this thing about what a woman would, would feel uh, it was never uh, discussed uh, right. at trial. What, can you elaborate on that? 
Yes, and what I'll do, and thank you for reminding me, um, is just take the court to uh, the McIsaac decision, I think it is. Actually, the JM decision at tab six of my condensed block. And I would ask the court to turn to paragraph 36 in the excerpt. And this goes to the trial fairness issue, the procedural dimension of the unfairness of the appellant's or the respondent's trial. So there at paragraph 36, the court says, the issue of judicial notice most often arises when a party requests the trial of fact to take judicial notice of a fact other parties then may support or oppose a request. The adversarial process ensures a transparent consideration of the request. That's the way that judicial notice is normally dealt with. Moving on to my concern, the next two paragraphs. More problematic are the occasions on which justices take judicial notice without the benefit of the submissions from the parties. Such conduct by a judge lacks transparency, thereby risking the perception of the fairness of the hearing. It also risks crossing the boundary, separating the notorious and readily demonstrable from the disputed and controversial. Again, risking the perception of procedural fairness. As put by the authors of Sapinka, judges should not conduct their own research and come to the conclusion that facts are notorious, for there is no opportunity for the parties to respond. Paragraph 38 where a judge on his own initiative wishes to take judicial notice of a fact or state of affairs that bears on a key issue in a proceeding, the adversarial process requires that the court ensure that the parties are given an opportunity to deal with the new information by making further submissions, oral or written, and allowing, if requested, fresh material in response. So that was the procedural unfairness that was visited upon the respondent by the judge's decision to make a very general finding of fact without notice. He didn't know that was the case, a part of the case that he was obliged to meet. That was not given, uh, he was not given notice and therefore in addition to a, a legal error, there is an element of a miscarriage of justice for him visited by that legal error he didn't know that the, the judge's own personal views on what a woman would necessarily feel form part of the case against him. That was unfair in my submission. Chief Justice, may I ask a last question? Would you mind? Sorry, thank you. Maybe, maybe it's not the last. Maybe know. it's not the last. <laughs> no, Mr. Anderson, I've got one question. Let's, let's uh, just for the purposes of my question, assume that, that uh, we don't accept, the court doesn't accept a new rule that would result in an error of law, uh, that the, the, the sentence at paragraph 68 of the trial judgment reflects an error of law, that we, that we agree with uh, the Crown that, uh, that this doesn't constitute the basis for an error of law. Um, is there a reviewable, error, a reversible error other in the absence of that error of and law? I, I want to make sure I understand uh, okay. Justice Kassir the question because I've Good. I haven't in the past. So um, you've done if, pretty, you've done pretty well. <laughs> if, if if the court is asking about the appellant submission that the rule against ungrounded uh, common sense findings 
should be rejected by this court? Is that a component it should of the be rejected? That right. The standard of review there would be an, uh, a standard of, of correctness, error of law, and that as the Crown acknowledged, it's open to to argue a reversible error on the Housen or HL basis. Um, my question to you is, do we have one of those? What I would say, and this is going to take a little bit of time, what I would say is Justice Pachoco's characterization of that error is simply a definition that he has given to a long-standing principle of law. It's nothing new. In JMH uh, 2011 SCC 45, this court said at paragraph 45, it has long been recognized that it is an error of law to make a finding of fact for which there is no supporting evidence. That is nothing new. It is nothing new. The review uh, for a, 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 just a challenge of a finding of credibility, a naked challenge, is subject to deference. But a review of an error made in the reasoning process to come to that conclusion, if it's a legal error, the standard review is correctness in, in my submission. And when we're talking about deference, it is also important to step back and consider why. Why is there deference shown to a trial judge? Because the trial judge is in a privileged position to review and see the witnesses who give evidence. When it comes to a common sense proposition, or indeed something that's subject to judicial notice, the trial judge is in no better position to make that finding because it's not connected to the evidence that the trial judge saw. Any appeal court can, can conclude, no, that's not common sense, or no, that's not judicial notice. So the policy reasons for the deference don't bear out that argument by the appellant either. All right. Thank you very much. The court will take its uh, lunch break. We'll be back at 1.15. La Cour, the court. Thank you. Please be seated. Mr. Fowler. Thank you, uh, Chief Justice, uh, Justices. Um, I'd like to start my submissions this afternoon um, hoping to assist you a little bit with the issue of whether there is really a meaningful distinction between stereotypes, which we all accept have been historically problematic, and ungrounded common sense assumptions. It's our respectful submission to the court that really there's, at its core there's no meaningful distinction uh, between the two, they're problematic because they are examples of trial judges engaging in a process of speculation. I'd like to start 
in the year 2000, when Madam Justice Laura Dubé wrote, myths and stereotypes have no place in a rational and just system of law as they jeopardize the court's truth-finding process. I respectfully submit that this is a principle of general application. It applies to all witnesses, all fact-finding, and all credibility analysis. Myths and stereotypes in the context of criminal law are essentially unfounded, frequently false, generalizations or assumptions about how people behave in innumerable circumstances. They're frequently used and have been used to discredit the testimony of witnesses, often complainants. In other words, they are conclusions not established by the evidence or other findings of fact. They have been described as the faux imprimatur of common sense. And we've heard a lot today about common sense. The difficulty with common sense is it's actually very difficult to define. It's kind of amorphous. I heard this morning from my colleague that it's, uh, it's a priori uh, reasoning. It's almost like common sense is defined simply by the Actually, user. Actually, a priori reasoning is fundamentally different from inductive reasoning. I, I agree with that. Yeah. The, the problem is you can't define what common sense is, so I thought, why not start with a dictionary? Uh, it's defined as a basic level of practical knowledge and judgment that we all need. Good sense, sound judgment, it's starting to sound somewhat circular in practical matters, practical judgment concerning everyday matters that's common to all. The problem with common sense is that it's been used in the past to mask prejudice. It's been used in the past to conceal myths. And the common law in criminal law has evolved to take account of that, not just in the context of sexual assault cases, but in the context of many cases. Consciousness of guilt, that was the language that was used at one point in our history. In other words, you could infer guilt directly from somebody's conduct after an offense. That's evolved to after-the-fact conduct, a more neutral term. And juries are cautioned, in fact, not to rely on their common sense. They're cautioned that you might come to the wrong conclusion as to why somebody ran from the scene of the crime. Demeanor, again, was often relied upon as a manner of assessing the credibility of witnesses. We caution jurors about that, and we caution jurors about eyewitness identification because it's more flawed, we know now, than perhaps intuitively individuals would believe. Now, leaving aside that generalizations about human behavior are frequently wrong, they're self-serving, they're often ignorant of cultural, sexual differences, or other contexts, the most essential problem in the criminal cases is that we're rarely actually dealing with generalized behavior. People behave out of character, irrationally, unpredictably, and surprisingly. And I'd like to start by taking you, please, to Justice Fitch's decision in Pastro, because he summarizes this point uh, so adeptly 
It's at tab 12 in the condensed book, and I'm looking at paragraph 44. In the middle of that paragraph, relying on assumptions about how people normally behave to make findings of fact and credibility engages speculative reasoning, which courts have said for a long time is an error of law. In addition, approaching the fact-finding process in this way is dangerous because it does not account for the unpredictable, surprising, and out-of-character ways in which human beings sometimes do behave. The danger may be particularly acute where the context in which a contentious event has occurred is such that behavioral norms may be even less likely to serve as reliable touchstones in the fact-finding process. And while you have the book open, I'd like to take you to tab four, Justice Martin's decision in CMG when you were on the Alberta Court of Appeal. Again, succinctly shows that myths and stereotypes are no different from generalizations about human behavior. Paragraph 60, six, 60 sorry. Broadly speaking, myths and stereotypes rest on untested and unstated, and this is the critical part, assumptions about how the world works or how certain people behave in particular situations. Well, now that's interesting because if there's no difference, really, between myths, stereotypes, and unwarranted assumptions about human behavior, and if the standard of review for uh, myths and stereotypes is correctness, then of course the, the logical consequence is that for all generalizations, the standard review is correctness. If, if a trial judge is relying on a generalization about human behavior and interjecting that between the fact and the inference to be drawn from that fact, yes, it's an error of law in my respectful submission. Okay, I, I would like to come in here now that you've quoted me. Uh, I would like to uh, um, question your basic premise, which is that myths and stereotypes and all untested assumptions are similar. And I think we have to understand historically that the myths and stereotypes which lead to um, errors in law have been firmly grounded in sexual assault law because of the way that the law was initially structured. It's not just a common law idea. Part, it used to be that you'd have to raise a hue and uh, cry. It used to be that there were rules around corroboration. Parliament has removed all of those by law because these myths and stereotypes were embedded in law. They were encoded in the legal standards that were applied to all cases of sexual assault. Similarly, we have twin myths prohibitions um, of any kind of reasoning, and then we have whole other sets. So the myths and stereotypes of which we speak were those that were based not just on untested assumptions, but moving from the general to the particular in a context in which the law itself was said to be discriminatory and to create an unlevel playing field between complainant and, accuser, uh, and accused. 
and, and to level that playing field, to ensure that fair rights of accused and the dignity, equality, and uh, security of the person interests of complainants were balanced, it was made into a different category, understanding the nature of this crime, its absolutely unique legislative history, and the ability of the myths and stereotypes which have been acknowledged to get in the way of fact-finding. So to say that because that separate category has led to um, an error of law, to me, it, it, it's not a proper parallel. And you can't draw it out to say, well, all of those same things apply here, and we're going to have this new category of law uh, that, that applies across the board. Um, it, it's, it's ahistoric. I mean, it, it's a contextual. <laughs> uh, it, 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 it's asking to do something that we haven't done. And if you say, well, that was done in 2000, it, it's a matter of general application that applies to all. I'm, I, I'm not sure that uh, that was the intention, the origin, and it clearly has not been the current application. So. I just want you to address those observations, please. And it goes um, to Justice Casera's question this morning about Seaboya. If one looks at the history of cases that have come to appellate courts and this court, where assertions have been made that the trial judge relied upon myths and stereotypes adverse to the credibility of the complainant, I would agree that some of those have been the traditional ones about hue and cry, but they've actually gone significantly uh, beyond that in my respectful submission. The Steele case, which is cited amongst all of the many authorities before you, where an accused was acquitted because the trial judge made assumptions about why the complainant entered the abandoned trailer. AJRD about avoidance behaviors. CMG, I agree, is perhaps an example of uh, more traditional stereotypes involving didn't cry out, didn't complain, did not run. But the stereotypes go just beyond the, I mean, the, the myths and stereotypes that have been identified can go to any number of subjects. They can go to credibility, and twin myths and whatever, but they also can go directly to consent. And in this area of the law, Parliament has uh, put out various definitions of consent um, that have a direct tie in to the myths and stereotypes that, that may not be uh, a properly applied to what Parliament says is the content of the modern consent rule. So, they're, they're different things, but they tie themselves into a legal principle, um, a law, um, and it's not just all fact-finding across uh, the universe of criminal, criminal behavior uh, and both sides. The myths and stereotypes is a very uh, contained uh, notion uh, directed towards a particular evil that Parliament uh, and the courts sought to alleviate. I would accept that there is a, a well-contained body of myths and stereotypes, and I would respectfully submit that that body 
of uh, myths and stereotypes uh, has fueled, in my uh, submission, a evolution in our understanding of judicial decision-making that includes the fact that myths and stereotypes can also be used um, unintentionally often uh, to undermine the credibility of the accused or to overstate the credibility of the complainant. We understand, in my submission, in many areas of the law that at the end of the day, when we're thinking about the reasoning process, take aside what the myth and stereotype is from a factual point of view. At the end of the day, the reasoning process is problematic because it's not a reasonable inference, because the foundational principle is wrong. In other words, it's speculation, which has always existed as an error of law in the criminal law. I accept that the that drawing the line between a reasonable inference and speculation is difficult, but at the end of the day, trial judges, for, for any reason, cannot speculate. And in my submission, the way of understanding the problem with myths and stereotypes or unfounded assumptions about human behavior is what is being done is that the trial judge is, in, in, is interjecting between the evidence and an inference a belief. Myths and stereotypes is one example of insidious beliefs, but there are others. And the trial judge is interjecting those beliefs. And in my submission, it doesn't matter what those beliefs are, because we, we all accept those beliefs change over time. Those misbeliefs, those misunderstandings, they evolve over time. And that's why I gave the court examples of how the law has evolved in respect of other areas of evidence, because we understand that some of our reasoning processes as a human being are problematic. And I agree that in the case of sexual assault, it's a very, very specific area for obvious reasons why we accept that myths and stereotypes have created problems. But it's not a closed box, because fundamentally the problem is speculation. But is it speculation or is it common sense? And the entire criminal law runs on common sense. We tell jurors to exercise their common sense. There's always the belief factor that comes in somewhere because trial judges are, are required to do the most difficult things. They have to say what happened. Ha what likely happened, what's been established beyond a reasonable doubt, and then they have to give reasons for credibility. I, I, I accept it is a tough task, but you know, it should be. Oh, of course be because it should be. We're sending but, 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 but where, where, why is a generalization as a, as a coming in there? Um, that's not uh, the belief part um, has to be part of the reasoning chain or we have, what, judicial notice, we have direct evidence, or we have expert evidence. Like, it, it, just the way courts work. And if, if, if I look at the way cross-examination has run, the defense is running with ideas about beliefs and generalizations and what's likely, and common sense, this couldn't have happened this way because the following. I agree, and you make an important observation a really important observation, counsel cross-examine. Mm -hmm. 
That didn't on the basis of certain beliefs. Right, but that, and that didn't happen in this case. He wasn't cross-examined about why he drove away like that. Instead, the trial judge interjected her own belief about why he, he left that way. And that, in my respectful submission, is the critical distinction and why the cases have developed and said you make decisions based on the evidence, not your own assumptions about why people behave. Right, but and he could have been cross-examined about why he left. He could have, uh, but her, his evidence could also have, have met that because my understanding is she spoke to being left there. I mean, so whether it could have been a cross or not, there was, there was evidence where she explains the leaving and then it's open then to say, what are we going to do with this evidence? What inferences can we rightfully draw? I, I, I agree. And I'll take you to my comments about um, what was actually said in the reasons for judgment uh, uh, momentarily. I want to go back to common sense. We have to accept, and the law clearly accepts, that common sense is not unbounded. And yes, we do instruct juries to rely on their common sense. I sometimes tell juries, to be careful about relying on your common sense because what you're dealing with is neither common or nor does it make any sense. And I'm not just trying to be cute with the jury when I say that, but how many jurors would have had a life experience of many of the things that we talk about as if they occur sort of all the time? Not many. These are issues that are, are coming to jurors uh, new. And one person's common sense may be very different from another person's common sense. But it also may be that That's one That's why you have 12 people on a jury. Right. But one person's common sense may also be based on prejudice, stereotype, uh, false assumptions about human behavior that are so off the wall. And that could be possible for, for judges because of their own particular life experiences. And I'm not going to say much more about this because one of the um, interveners, CDES, has written a factum addressing common sense. I accept that it's a difficult issue because, yes, you should be able to rely on your common sense to, to some degree. The question is, to what degree? The question is, how do we dissever from the process the point at which you're no longer relying on common sense to draw a logical, rational inference, but are instead interjecting, as I say, a belief system and relying upon that belief system, not to draw a logical inference, but to draw an inference that has been infected, if you like, by your false beliefs. I think it's, I think you've got, oh yeah. Sorry. I think there is a, you know, as Justice Kazira said earlier, the leaving unceremoniously is the one that arguably most closely approaches uh, characterization as a sexual stereotype for which there was no basis in the record. Uh, what about the other two? Can, can I start with that one and make a few comments? Because we've heard a lot about, appropriately, I'm not suggesting otherwise, about reading the reasons contextually, but it's also looking at the record contextually. You look at the evidence. So I'd like to start with the reasons for judgment, uh, tab one of the condensed book. And I'd like to start with paragraphs 131 and 132. These are two important paragraphs in the trial judge's analysis of Mr. Zhang's credibility. The middle of paragraph 131, the trial judge says, on his own evidence, he did not get her consent to everything he did that night. For example, when he put his hands over her breasts when they first got on the dance floor. He never testified to doing that. 
He never said that he actually did that. He wasn't cross-examined. It was never put to him that he had actually done that. So that's an error in the analysis of the facts. His lack of interest moments earlier at LBV's invitation to meet again was at odds with his evidence that they had just had a great time. His evidence actually was he was working the next day. And his evidence was, I will try my best. That's what he said. I'm not sure how that can be characterized as a lack of interest. I will try my best to see you the next day. That was what his evidence was. And then the court continues, but is consistent with a non-consensual event where he got what he wanted without regard for her and drove away. So that conclusion about driving away is itself premised upon misapprehensions or misunderstanding of what the evidence actually was. The next paragraph is about him being hungover and about his memory. And the court concludes that his level of, uh, that him being hungover and recovering brings the reliability of his testimony into question as well. He was asked whether he had any problems with his memory and he said no. And he was asked no further questions about that. It was simply put, do you have any problems with your memory? No. He also, in respect of the text message, said that the message was only partially true. And there were no further follow-up questions about that. Paragraph 133. And the reason I'm taking you to do these paragraphs is because they're replete with either misunderstandings of the evidence or assumptions. Paragraph 133 is a good example. Mr. Zhang test described himself as a promoter, but he actually described himself as a promoter at a different nightclub. It was called the Venue Nightclub. His ability to offer entry into the party to the two women, he actually testified that he invited both the two women and the individual who was a friend of LBV and he couldn't go because he was going to another after party. His ability to offer entry into the party to the two women, he had no ability to offer entry. All he had the ability to do was phone somebody up. Had just met would have been something he would have likely tried to use to his advantage. That is again, just an assumption. It's, it was not explored in the evidence what advantage he had? What knowledge did he actually have? What experience did he have with this nightclub? So this bold statement that he's a promoter and promoters are able to do certain things is again based on an assumption. So let's turn to paragraph but may I just, uh, Sorry. You're going through this. May I just ask you, so the law provides an, air, an avenue for you to say that these are um, incorrect conclusions in a judgment based on the evidence. And isn't that showing that there's a palpable and overriding error or there is no evidence? And, and why that. does that have to be somehow uh, recast, repackaged as a new rule against some kind of new thing that's elevated into another error of law when we have the palpable and overriding standard? I 
in my submission, it goes back to the simple proposition that this court has stated and other appellate courts have stated on numerous occasions, and that is speculation in the fact-finding process is an error of law. And um, speculating is when you rely upon, as I said a moment ago, assumptions about human behavior as opposed to the facts. Excuse me if I say that the, just what you're saying about here about him being a promoter and not having, is that speculation or are you just saying the trial judge made a wrong inference there? I don't see that specu, like, so is every time you um, accept a piece of evidence and go a little bit further, it becomes speculation and subject to uh, an error of law standard? Um, that's my submission what the law says. If you're not drawing reasonable inferences, you're speculating. But about speculation in my book, mm. you know, perhaps it has been used inconsistently. This is one of the things that bedevils the law, that when people write reasons for decisions, sometimes they use the same words and mean different things. And when it even gets worse is when they don't realize they're doing so. But at least for me, speculation is filling in the blank. It's not saying a person in that position is likely to have uh, behaved in a certain manner. It's we don't have any evidence as to what happened in that five-minute period. But I'm going to fill in the blank. I'm going to speculate. And, 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 and uh, which is different from talking about the likelihood of um, someone's behavior or does this appear to be plausible. Now, I understand speculation may have been used in a different way by others, but to try to keep some coherence in this analysis, which is elusive, I have to tell you. I, I don't disagree. But for me, speculation is not about what someone is likely to do, but what actually happened in the absence of evidence and, and, and you just so well I think the following occurred and then you proceed on and basically on a finding effect where you you don't have evidence you just make it up. Justice Roy you made an, as part of your question or comment to me you talked about filling in a blank. The question really what we're talking about here is filling in a blank with what? And what these cases are about is filling in a blank with generalizations about human uh, behavior in the context of, yes, sexual assault cases, but that context should, could readily change. And the, the principles that I'm discussing here are applicable taking into account Justice Martin's questions about the unique nature of sexual assault cases, which I completely accept. Um, but the, the principle that I'm advocating, which is that interjecting in the decision-making or the reasoning process a belief system about how people behave and the driving away in a car in my submission, paragraph 153, I was going to take you to, the trial judge says this, and in my submission this has to be read with paragraph 131. He took off right away because of what he had just done. That she makes that finding without any factual foundation in my submission. 
He wasn't questioned about it. And I, I go back to the questioning because that is important because if he had been questioned about it, it might have been an issue that could logically have been given rise to inferences adverse to him. For example, if he had been questioned and he had said in chief, uh, I drove off right away. And then in cross-examination, it was put to him, you drove off right away. Why did you drive off uh, so quickly? And he said, well, I didn't really drive off that quickly. I actually hung around to make sure she got to the door. Let's say that was the evidence. The trial judge could say that was internally inconsistent. He said he drove off right away, and now he's saying, well, he didn't. It's also inconsistent with what the complainant has said and what the complainant's friend has said. So we've got two bases upon which the trial judge could rationally use this body of evidence and the manner of driving off to make adverse findings against his credibility. But that's not what happened. She makes an adverse finding against his credibility simply on the manner of driving off. And that has to be based on an assumption about human behavior, that somebody who had had a, a, a nice night with somebody they had just met, engaged in sexual activity in a car in a parking lot consensually, they would have hung around. And I think to myself, as I was thinking about this issue, what if he had hung around, walked her to the door? What if that had happened? What could be made of that? Would the trial judge be okay to say, well, he walked her to the door? That's not consistent with an unconsensual event, a non-consensual event. Mr. Fowler, I have to say, when I looked at it, I thought it was linked to how she characterized uh, what happened at the end uh, when he left. And from what I'm hearing from you is you want us to speculate what she thought as the writer of the decision. Well, with respect, I said you read it with paragraph 131, where she found it's consistent with a non-consensual event where he got what he wanted without regard for her and drove away. I don't think you can separate the two findings. The court says he took off right away because what he had just done to her and because she meant nothing to him. There was no foundation for that either. It is inconsistent with his evidence that he wanted to pleasure LBV that night. So his manner of driving off is apparently inconsistent with how he said he treated the complainant. That has to be based on nothing other than an assumption about if somebody had treated you well, you wouldn't drive off that way. But that's an enormous leap uh, in logic and clearly interjects into their beliefs about how men would behave, I suppose. Why was this material to the ultimate conclusion? Sorry, over here. And then what about the other two? Yes, uh, I'll take it. Sorry, thank you. Um, why is it material? Um, because the trial judge draws a direct connection in my submission between his manner of driving off and non-consensual sexual activity. It's a direct connection. It's, as was discussed this morning, it's almost tantamount, and in our facts, and we describe it as after the sex conduct, it's tantamount and is being used in a manner that's synonymous with consciousness of guilt. But it's based on an entirely false premise, not one that is supportable in my submission. Now I'm going to take you to, if I can. But isn't the trial judge there building what 
is said expressly, which is that she rejects Mr. Tang's evidence about him being, I guess, careful, solicitous, and whatever. And, and she says, I don't, I don't accept that, and doesn't accept it in different areas, and then goes off on here and says, we have this evidence of that. And I see this evidence as being part of the pattern because I, I, I reject this, I reject this, and therefore I make this comment as well. If, if she had said that, might be a difficult argument to make, but she doesn't say that. She says clearly it's the, man, it's the connection between the manner of driving off and her conclusion. And I know we're not supposed to pass the reasons, but by the same token, as Justice Fitch says in Pastro, we are looking at the reasons. Because we can't... It would be a very difficult job for this court. It would be a very difficult job for the Crown and for myself if we had to discuss, well, these are the reasons that could have been given. We, uh, the starting point, and this is the role of reasons, is what this trial judge found and what this trial judge said. So let me take you to the second error, paragraph 129 of the reasons for judgment, paragraphs 102 and 109 of my factum. The idea that sexual intercourse was thwarted by the inability to locate a condom. The trial judge's words were, the accused description about the prospect of intercourse being thwarted by a lack of a condom in his car when there was one available was contrived in my view and contrary to the level of control he conveyed about that evening and in court. As the Court of Appeal found, there's an underlying premise to that which is a misapprehension of the evidence. His evidence was very clear. He wasn't contradicted on this. He was barely cross-examined on this that he was looking in the center console of his car for a condom, and he couldn't locate one. If you look at the photographs, it's not like he kept his car particularly tidy. One was located in another area of the car, an area that he never said he looked in. The idea of the trial judge, the, the conclusion of the trial judge, and the word that she used, and Mr. Zhang didn't use, that of being thwarted, that he would have persisted to have unprotected sexual intercourse because he was a, a person who had a certain level of control, again, it's a bit circular. In fact, if he was a person who had such a level of control, in fact, you could equally make the argument with that level of control, he would have, in fact, done exactly what he did. But on this one, on this alleged error, isn't really it to be read in the context of the decision and the trial judge's findings are really about a pattern of controlling the behavior, starting with the uh, suggestion that they leave the fanny packs in the car? Yes and so that he could keep a kind of a tab on them and, and, then, and then also ignoring the wishes of the women about the purchase of alcohol. 
and ultimately leading to the conclusion about uh, aggressive, inappropriate, forceful uh, disregard for their well-being. So it's part of, it is perhaps, I agree. I agree with you. you that, could, be clear, but I agree that with that's you. the way it is, at least I, one could read it the way you suggested, but it's part of a pattern of controlling conduct, not, not that a controlling person would necessarily force themselves, but in light of what happened over this evening and the findings that unimpugned about the fanny pack and the alcohol, that's really what the judge is getting at, I think. Well, I can accept for the purpose of this alleged error that there were findings the trial judge could make about him exercising a level of control for the very reasons, Justice uh, Jamal, you have stated. But it's the false premise that that leads ineluctably to the conclusion that he would have had unprotected sex, which is what she's saying here. And don't forget, he denied intercourse. This was a critical issue. He denied intercourse. He said that did not happen. There was obviously issues about consent in respect of other sexual activity, but there was factually an agreement about that sexual activity involving digital penetration, for example. But when it came to intercourse, this is one of the trial judge's most important findings in respect of the conclusion that he had intercourse because somehow if you exercise control throughout the evening and you meet this woman, you go to a nightclub, and then drive, make them put their bags into the back of the car, then with the complainant's assistance go to this parking lot. If I accept for everything, Justice Jamal, you've said about that being indicative of a level of control over the evening, how does that lead to the conclusion that he would have persisted and had intercourse in circumstances where he couldn't find a condom. It, it, it's just, it just does not logically flow. It does not logically flow that a controlling person, a person who would contrive um, an evening to get uh, a woman to a place where he could engage in sexual activity with them, would nonetheless continue and have intercourse as opposed to, without a condom, as opposed to continue with other sexual activity. But it's a pattern of ignoring the wishes of the women. That's what the trial judge is, is drawing upon. It's a pattern over the course of the evening of ignoring what they wanted. But, but it involves, it, it also includes perhaps ignoring the fact that he might not want it to have unprotected sexual intercourse. But the evidence was that she's the one who asked for the condom. So now we're speculating into something else, and that's what I, I have an issue with this argument. Well, the issue is what the trial judge does with the connection between sexual intercourse, not being able to find a condom, and, and Mr. Zhang. There's no suggestion he would have persisted. Where does the suggestion that he would have persisted? No, but the issue is that she didn't believe most of what his testimony was. So why would she believe him on this one thing? But, but, the, but this is, this is the, the point and why we were in the Court of Appeal because she didn't believe him for 
reasons that are logically flawed. And this is another example of that. Okay. It's irrational to suggest, as the court did, that he would have persisted in his controlling conduct to the point that he was having unprotected sexual intercourse because he could not find a condom. And again, this is based on a false appreciation of the evidence, which was the condom was not in the location that he said it was. Okay, I appreciate your focusing us quite closely on the circumstances of this case because it, it matters greatly for your client. I'm going to bring it back to the more doctrinal level <laughs> briefly, and I'm going to put to you a, a point that I put to Madame uh, Elliott, just so you have a chance to respond in a parallel way. Is there not a difference between saying, um, as a general proposition or, or a common sense proposition, individuals, men, uh, uh, behave in this way ordinarily, versus saying, given the other findings of fact that I have made with respect to this particular individual, in this instance it's an accused, that person's behavior is more likely to have been X, and, but it's drawn in a sense from an appreciation of the individual which is in, in, in turn drawn from the evidence. One is about the world in general, one is about the, the, the propensity, perhaps, of this individual. I think, uh, Justice Rowe, your, your question um, essentially posits where is the line between just relying on generalizations and doing what Justice Pachioko says you should do, which is avert to the specific evidence in the specific case. But even when you avert to the specific evidence in the specific case, you can still draw irrational conclusions. And the second error is a good example of that in my respectful submission. But yes, as a matter of principle, you, the trial judge, should avert to the specific evidence in the specific case and draw rational conclusions or inferences from that without resorting in that fact-finding ultimate verdict process, generalizations, beliefs, be they stereotypes, myths, about how humans behave, how men behave. And in my submission, the trial judge clearly did this, did that in this case. Now, Justice Jamal, you asked me about the third issue. We, as you notice, we reversed in our factum the issues as they were raised by the Court of Appeal for reasons that uh, the third issue is considerably more problematic. I, I accept that. Um, the Court of Appeal said there was no foundation for um, the trial judge's conclusion uh, that his evidence that she said spanked me. I think I would submit that's actually an example in response to Justice Rowe's question where other findings about the complainant and her behavior that night could be relied upon, in fact, to support the conclusion that she didn't say that. 
So perhaps it's fair to say that on this, this issue about spank me, that the Court of Appeal perhaps um, took it a little bit too far. There was in fact some evidence when you look at the whole of the record to suggest that it's unlikely to go, Justice Martin, to a word you've used often about the fact-finding process, that it is looked at uh, reasonably unlikely that she would have said that. But that's in contradistinction to the other two errors in my respectful submission. If I could just have 30 seconds to wrap up. Um, at the end of the day, the Court of Appeal hasn't acquitted Mr. Zhang. The Court of Appeal, and I know it's difficult for complainants to go through another trial, but the Court of Appeal ordered a new trial, and in my respectful submission, on a sound uh, legal basis, that errors were committed in the credibility assessment of Mr. Zhang, and the, uh, I would ask you to um, dismiss the Crown's appeal and permit the retrial to continue. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Mr. Del Biggio. Thank you. Uh, questions about how we reason and how we know are philosophically complex. But if common sense is a tool of reasoning or a basis for fact-finding that is part of the legal process, then it's fundamental to, then it's fundamental to, to trial fairness that there should be absolute clarity as to what common sense is, how to use it, and how to review it. There is some, as a result of some exchanges today, there's a question about whether common sense is a methodology, something like um, inferential reasoning or inductive reasoning, or whether it is a basis for knowing something. So in other words, whether it is a, um, a basis for a, a claim of knowledge. And in uh, some questions, the, the, uh, Justice Jamal and I believe also Justice Rowe gave the example of the punch of, in the face. With, I, as I understood those questions, um, they were put as examples and perhaps clear examples of a common sense understanding. But the problem with giving an example and suggesting it is a clear example, and in this, in this instance, a clear example of common sense, is it begs the very question at issue, and that is, what is common sense? Knowing, having knowledge of the, that a person was punched in the face or claiming that it, that is common sense, that a person would know that they were punched in the face, begs the very issue at question. Trial fairness requires an opportunity to know and challenge evidence, transparency with respect to the rules and process, it requires an outcome based on evidence and those rules and an outcome that is subject to meaningful review. A judge ought not fill evidentiary gaps with common sense and a judge ought not bolster the strength of available inferences based upon common sense. And the concern with the phrase is that it is inscrutable and opaque. It's easy to state what common sense should not be, whatever it is. It shouldn't be a disguise for bias. It shouldn't shelter prejudice. It shouldn't be based upon stereotypes or a guess or a feeling, a hunch 
or an intuition, we, it's probably easy enough to agree that a fair process, a fair outcome, should not be based upon considerations such as that. But if it is not those things, what is it? So it's easy to say what common sense isn't or what it should not be, but it's much more difficult to grapple with what it is. There's some suggestion and some um, that is based upon a life experience, but is that an actual life experience? Whose life experience? Or is it a life experience of a mythical, reasonable person? When I go to Montreal, I expect people to drive fast. That's based on experience. Well, um, I'll give you an, uh, let me pick up on that. Um, one form of reasoning is I've been to Montreal 10 times. On each of those 10 times, people have, I've seen people to drive fast. Therefore, I infer in my next visit, people will also drive fast. That is an example of a way in which data is used upon which to drive an inference. But the risk is that common sense becomes a disguise for merely personal opinion. And in a diverse society, there's a risk that common sense is the view of one group that is imposed upon another. The risk is that common sense for one is not apparent at all to someone else. And the risk is that what is common sense today is in doubt tomorrow. Dinner tables and lunch counters and coffee shops and bar rooms and letters to the editor show that it is difficult, if not impossible, to confirm or disconfirm what is known as a matter of common sense. It is an arbitrary or opaque standard and not, therefore it's not possible to resolve a disagreement in a principled way. And common sense for those reasons shouldn't be a test upon which people are sent to jail. And the risk further is that if common sense is simply what a judge or a higher court says it is, then it is uh, nothing more than an after-the-fact determination by a higher court that the higher court tends to agree with what the judge said is, is common sense. Thank you very much. And that's much. not a principled way in which to proceed. Thank, Thank you. you. Bernard Van de Beek. Good afternoon. So the Criminal Lawyers Association of Ontario advocates for adherence to sort of the traditional or common principles in terms of inference drawing based on evidence that was proven in a case and the high standard of proof requ required to take judicial notice. And in our view, findings of guilt that are premised on what one particular judge deems to be sort of quote unquote common sense, particularly in the context of sexual assault cases, risks diminished respect for the judicial system. And in making um, this submission, I'm going to make two points to the court. Um, first, that in the context of sexual interactions and sexual behaviors, there's no bright line rule about what is common sense or normal or the normal way that people will act in these situations. And second, second accepting that there's no one size fits all model for a common sense approach relying on this type of approach risks wrongful convictions, which will create a disconnect between the laws and rules made by this court and what society views as normal consensual behaviors. What is perceived as common, normal, or expected in sexual 
interactions is something that is highly unique. This is because individuals' sexual experiences and perception of what um, sexual human behavior is influenced by multitude of factors, including an individual's upbringing, their morality, their culture, their age, and their religion. And these cases before you provide examples of circumstances where it appears that judges are applying their perceived common sense in a sexual setting. But that does not um, necessarily fit with other legal or mainstream views of Canadians. If we just use the one example from the Zhang case, the court used the fact that the accused left abruptly after the sexual interaction as evidence that this, was, this exchange was non-consensual. However, there's no unifying or common sense way that people will act following a sexual encounter. One man or woman's after the fact conduct, conduct in, of a sexual encounter in one era for one race and for one morality is not the same of another who is from a different age or exposed to different beliefs. And for example, many young people today have grown up in a very different era an era where there's almost continuous social media and where they're exposed to sexuality and sex on a much different way than generations before. This life experience and upbringing impacts their perception and views of what is common sense. So there may be some, not all, but there may be young people who view sex in this way as a more transactional situation. So leaving abruptly after a sexual intercourse may or may not have any um, indication about whether or not someone is consenting. Once you exclude since, all the, Ms. Ms. Van Der Beek, once you exclude, and Mr. Del Biggio is sort of persuasively putting the notion that we know what isn't common sense, it may be that common sense has been narrowed over the years. Now that we are a much more multicultural society, we have women uh, on the bench, etc. so that the experiences of the people who are judging is different. So the common sense may be narrower than it used to be, and certain things should be excluded. But there has to be an irreducible core of which we can have an overlapping consensus of all these different groups that comprise our society are the basis for reasoning for different groups. And surely there has to be something, because what I'm hearing from you, the last two, you and the uh, previous uh, council, is almost as if we need to rid common sense from the law as a term, and it's embedded in our Section 1 jurisprudence. It's certainly embedded in the law in jury charges, in the definition of a reasonable doubt. So given that it, it's perhaps a bit of a tall ask, I wonder, to rid the law of common sense, what are we to, to how are we to define it in a way that can be, that seems to me to be a more uh, uh, achievable uh, objective. Yes, Justice Jamal. Um, what I don't propose to be advocating that there's, there's no role for common sense whatsoever. Sort of one of the sayings we hear often in criminal cases is sort of the sane and sober per person intends the natural consequences of their acts. And that is what I would submit is an example of common sense. But common sense th that's applied in the criminal context can never be a sweeping generalization. And even on that sort of idiom that's applied over and over again, there's limitations. The person is sane. The person is sober. And so our submission here today, um, since I'm out of time, is simply that, you know, when, sec when, when common sense turns into just 
a specific perception of one judge or one person in, in the legal system, and that, um, that fills the gap as opposed to evidence, then that causes a problem. Because one, it's evidence that's not tested, so it's not subject to the same scrutiny as everything else that's presented in a criminal trial. So that risks wrongful convictions. And then two, it creates a disconnect because when this court or other appellate courts endorses one judge's view of what is common sense, that becomes the law or the standard across the country as you know, leaving abruptly after a sexual encounter, that's suggestive non-consent. And when many Canadians wouldn't feel that way or view that as an indication of non-consent, that creates sort of what I would say diminished respect for the justice system because there's a disconnect between what's being said is common sense and the actual you know, lifestyle and human experiences that Canadians um, Thank you very deal much. with on a day-to-day -day basis. Mark Iyengar. Thank you. Chief Justice, Justices, I appear on behalf of the Trial Lawyers Association of British Columbia to submit that on appeal, trial reasons should be rigorously assessed to determine what they really mean. In a judge alone trial, the reasons are the guarantors of the verdict. They are what justifies the significant consequences that follow from a criminal conviction. Errors may be brief, they may even be implied rather than explicit. The question must always be whether the error was actually committed. The Crown submits in the Kruk appeal, and I think Justice Martin asked a question about this earlier on, uh, that one reason why there's no error in that case is because the alleged error is based on very few words in the trial judge's reasons. In my submission, that is not a basis to reject a ground of appeal. There are many cases in which the error committed by the trial judge was brief. And in some contexts, a few words will make a significant difference. For example, the difference between the phrases would have known and should have known is the difference between subjective and objective mens rea. They're entirely different legal standards, but the difference is only one word. That an error is brief does not mean that the trial judge did not intend what they said. In reviewing trial reasons, appellate courts should begin from the premise that trial judges usually mean what they say. Justice Rowe noted near the beginning of the hearing today that trial judges tell us why they have reasoned the way that they have. And in the absence of a good reason to think otherwise, appellate courts should rely on what the trial judge has said. And that doesn't mean privileging the literal meaning of the reasons, even when it's clear from the context that the literal meaning is not what was intended. That's what this court is called parsing, and that is not permissible. Um, Justice Kassir asked Mr. Anderson a question uh, along the lines of whether the presumption that trial judges know the law signifies sort of a method of reviewing reasons or an, an attitudinal comportment in the process of that review. Um, and in my submission, that is not the correct way of thinking about this presumption. 
And that's because approaching trial reasons in that way may lead the appellate court to accept an interpretation that is plausible but unlikely. Instead, the appellate court should try to determine the most likely meaning of the reasons. Where there is ambiguity, because multiple interpretations are equally likely, then the presumption has not been displaced. Trial reasons must be read in the context of the record, but reading reasons contextually doesn't favor any particular result. It can support the appellant just as much as it can support the respondent. For example, the positions of the parties at trial may tell us what a passage is about. Where the only issue at trial is reliability and credibility is conceded by the defense, then the trial judge is much more likely to spend the key portions of the analysis discussing reliability than credibility. And this goes to a point that was uh, made earlier in a question, I think, again, from Justice Kassir, that there's a, a flow to a judgment. And that's part of the context in which reasons are to be interpreted. This careful scrutiny of trial reasons in the context of the record will usually allow an appellate court to determine what those reasons mean. In other words, trial reasons are rarely ambiguous when understood in their full context. Ultimately, my submission is this. The conviction appeal can only serve its purpose if the actual reasons for the conviction are determined and the legal errors identified are remedied. Thank you. Thank you. Maître Casey. Excusez-moi, j'avais oublié le, le mute. Alors, bonjour. Alors, euh, j'aimerais débuter en rappelant ou en réitérant les arguments que nous avons soulevés dans notre mémoire qui représentent la position euh, de la CAD. Euh, par contre, nous aimerions ajouter que le maintien de la règle interdisant les, euh, interdisant les, les généralisations non fondées nous apparaît essentiel. Euh, D'une part, un procès doit toujours se décider, l'issue d'un procès doit toujours se décider sur la preuve qui a été présentée au juge ou au jury. Or, lorsque des, des généralisations non fondées sur la preuve sont utilisées, celles-ci viennent, comme, on a, comme, comme il a été suggéré là, par mes prédécesseurs, en partie ou en totalité, Fill the blank, donc remplir les trous qui ont été laissés par la preuve, ce qui rend le procès ou la décision mal fondée en droit. Euh, un, une décision qui ne s'appuie pas sur la preuve est une décision erronée. Il s'agit, à notre avis, d'une erreur de droit. Il y a été question de, du common sense, je ne répéterai pas ce que mes collègues ont déjà avancé. Il y a également les généralisations. J'aimerais reprendre un exemple qui a été soulevé ce matin euh, concernant là, euh, une généralisation par rapport au si dans un procès, un juge concluait que euh, bon, une mère a agi d'une façon envenante envers ses enfants et que c'est on peut 
se servir du common sense pour conclure que cette version est fondée dû au fait que les mères sont généralement avenantes envers leurs enfants. À notre avis, cette généralisation peut être utilisée si elle se rattache à la preuve, c'est un exemple, si elle se rattache à la preuve qui a été faite devant le tribunal. Donc, si la mère a témoigné à l'effet que dans, dans telle situation, elle s'est comportée de façon avenante et que le juge dit « je crois cette version parce que généralement les mères sont avenantes », je pense que cette conclusion cette généralisation utilisée s'appuie sur la preuve qui a été présentée. Par contre, si aucune preuve n'a été okay, si je et peux, un juge, oui. Est-ce que je peux, je, parce que le temps file et je, je voudrais vous poser une question sur un paragraphe de oui. votre, votre mémoire, le paragraphe 12, où oui. vous reconnaissez que vous dites force est de constater que la règle interdisant les, le recours au raisonnement stéréotypé s'adresse historiquement au raisonnement visant le comportement des plaignantes, plus particulièrement en matière de violence conjugale et sexuelle. Je voudrais oui. vous demander pourquoi croyez-vous cette spécificité ou est-ce qu'il y a une spécificité de ce contexte et ne peut-on pas dire que, outre la question d'un du, raisonnement non fondé sur la preuve, il y a aussi un volet de discrimination que la, le droit cherche à contrecarrer en imposant une norme de, de contrôle euh, de l'erreur euh, de, de, de droit. En fait, si je comprends bien votre question, euh, est-ce que les raisonnements stéréotypés ou des raisonnements euh, euh, peuvent avoir lieu dans d'autres circonstances que les infractions à caractère sexuel? La réponse, je vais dire que oui. Par contre, ce qu'on constate dans la jurisprudence, c'est que ça a généralement été utilisé dans ce type de dans, dans, dans ce type d'infraction. Euh, mais oui, il pourrait y avoir des questions de stéréotypes par rapport à la race, par rapport à l'origine ethnique. Euh, le juge Rose ce matin a mentionné là, les Anglais, les Irlandais. Alors oui, il pourrait y avoir un raisonnement stéréotypé de la part d'un juge dans ces circonstances-là. Mais soumis, Cependant... sous, 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 l'erreur soumise à la, au, à la même norme de contrôle? Avec... À notre avis, oui, puisqu'il s'agit... Cette, cette erreur-là serait soumise à la même norme de contrôle. Donc, une généralisation injustifiée qui ne s'appuie pas sur la preuve du fait que elle ne s'appuie pas sur la preuve, devient une erreur de droit et doit être soumise à la même norme de contrôle que les raisonnements stéréotypés. Si euh, je reviens à l'exemple de la mère, là, si, si je veux boucler la boucle rapidement, s'il n'y a pas eu de preuve et que le juge conclut que ben, la mère a dû être avenante avec ses enfants parce qu'une mère est généralement avenante, malheureusement, cette inférence-là, s'il n'y a pas eu de preuve de fait au procès, ne peut pas trouver application puisque malheureusement, les tribun le tribunal de la jeunesse est rempli de mères qui ne sont pas avenantes avec leurs enfants. Alors, on ne pourrait pas conclure qu'il s'agit d'une généralisation qui, ou, ou d'une conclusion de, de « de common sense euh, » applicable. Alors, je vous soumets respectueusement le tout. D'accord, je vous remercie. Euh, Megan Stevens. Good afternoon, Chief Justice, Justices. 
I'm here today with my co-counsel representing, representing West Coast LEAF and LEAF. These organizations intervene in the SANG appeal to ask this court to clarify that the rule against ungrounded common sense assumptions should not be used as a standalone basis to review trial judges' credibility findings on the standard of correctness. The rule is simply too malleable to be applied meaningfully or with consistency. Unlike the rule against stereotypical assumptions, which as Justice Martin has noted today, has historical roots in sexual assault laws, and which does target concerns about relying on myths or prejudicial beliefs recognized as interfering with the truth-seeking process, typically in relation to complainants, but also with respect to some accused. This rule is said to target speculative reasoning, but it does so on a very amorphous standard. As Justice Pachaco explained in JC, the rule does not mean you cannot use human experience and human behavior to interpret evidence. As some people seem to be suggesting today, that's really an essential part of the fact-finding process in our justice system. Instead, the rule is supposed to prohibit using, as, as Justice Pachaco put it, common sense or human experience to introduce new considerations not arising from the evidence into the decision-making process. While that may sound reasonable in theory, in practice it's proven very unpredictable in its application. The rule is really being used to open up judges' credibility findings almost exclusively in sexual assault cases to a highly invasive appellate review that's out of step with this court's long-standing jurisprudence. The rule is being used to overturn findings in the absence of palpable and overriding er error whenever there is a statement in a judge's reasons that could be said to be a common sense assumption, not rooted in evidence. Its application has left significant uncertainty as to which inferences are permissible and which are not, and in some cases has really opened the door to appellate judges substituting their own common sense assumptions too often rooted in stereotypes themselves for those they find in the trial judge's reasons. The decision in the court below in our submission highlights this concern. While the court accepted that the trial judge drew a permissible inference, for example, when she found that someone would not want to share a drink with the stranger, she was found to have erred and drawn an impermissible inference when she found the complainant would not want to engage in rough sex with that same person. Their rejection of the latter inference was itself rooted in troubling twin myth, myth reasoning, with the court seemingly suggesting that once the complainant had agreed to some sexual activity or foreplay, as they called it, she was more likely to have consented to more, or her claim that she didn't consent was at least in some ways less worthy of belief or needed to be subjected to heightened scrutiny. Their decision also seemed rooted in stereotypes about intoxicated women being sexually promiscuous or responsible for the consequences they suffer, as the court intimated that the marked departure in the complainant's behavior was consistent with her increased intoxication, rendering her earlier conduct unreliable in assessing credibility on the issue of consent. Perhaps most importantly, however, my clients are concerned that there is a very real risk that the rule will serve to undermine the dignity and equality rights of complainants. Crowns may decide to ask complainants highly intrusive, personal, and troubling questions about their sexual preferences or predilections in an attempt to appeal-proof the record and guard against future claims that there is no evidence to ground the assumptions in a judge's reasons. 
This type of traumatic and irrelevant examination is something this court has sought to limit for close to 30 years. But this rule could breathe life back into that long debunked twin myth reasoning, allowing considerations of propensity evidence under the pretext of credibility assessment, potentially undermining trial fairness. In my submission, this follows from paragraph 62 in JC, which Justice Obanswin referenced earlier today. It was also arguably endorsed by the British Columbia Court of Appeal in this case at paragraph 19, when, ex when it was referring to the judgment in Pastro um, and noting that in that case, there was evidence of the complainant's own predilections. We ask this court to not take us back to an era where that type of evidence is needed before a judge can accept a complainant's evidence as credible. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Reply. Thank you very much. Uh, I'd like to thank counsel for uh, your submissions. The court will take the case under advisement. Thank you.